You're listening to the Plane Talking UK podcast, the UK-based podcast written by a passenger for anyone. And here are your hosts, Carlos Devings, Matt Smith and Neville Bounds. Well, hello everybody and welcome to episode 235 of the Plane Talking UK podcast. My name's Neville Bounds and uh, it's going to be a slightly different show uh, today because young Carlos is far too busy doing uh, a disco, whatever one of those is, um, and doing some other bits and pieces. Oh, come on, it wasn't that long ago, Nev. You remember what a disco is. (laughs) Uh, But here's my chum, Matt Smith. Hello everyone, welcome, welcome. Apologies for our slightly late start. There is a good reason behind that. I'll uh, bore everyone with the details at some point during the show. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, I'll just do the continuity check. We are, as I say, slightly later than usual. It is 7.23 in the evening on Friday the September the 21st. So it's still Friday then. Actually managed to avoid reaching midnight. Yeah, for the moment, yes, yes. Bearing in mind, we've only just started, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't hold your breath just yet, Al. <laughs> and from uh, his estate in the northwest of England, uh, we are joined by Captain Al and uh, Josh, by the looks of things, as well. Council estate. Uh, <laughs> harsh. Uh, uh, yes, very harsh. Um, yes, a very good evening. Uh, it's Captain Al here with uh, with my co-pilot. It would appear. Hey, uh, I understand you've been cooking. You've been making cookies, uh, Josh. Uh, uh, he's nodding. Right. Okay. <laughs> what cookies have you made? What 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 theme have they been? Ghost theme. Ghost themes. You're getting theme in preparation cookies. for Halloween. Oh, yeah. Halloween, of course. Yes. Yeah, very close by. Very exciting. Oh yes. And uh, also joining us today from his home, I think, is Pilot Pip. Yes, shut up, shut up. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, at home, just got home a couple of hours ago from uh, six days at work. Do they uh, actually know that you're in that show house on the estate? <laughs> <laughs> Josh, give your dad a slap from me. <laughs> Uh, no. Thank you. <laughs> he actually did. Nice. Good lad. Very good. Okay, uh, Nev, I've yeah, got, nice fe- yeah, got a slight feeling, Nev, we're not going to have much control over today's proceedings. I don't know what, what gave me that idea. I, I just can't think why that might no, be. But, indeed. Um, anyway, so what's everybody been up to this week? What's, uh, what have you been up to, Matt? Uh, me? Oh, I've just, I've just been driving buses, really. That's about all I've been doing. Buses? Uh, sorry, coaches. Oops. Uh, <laughs> get me into trouble. Uh, yes, I've been driving coaches today, uh, this week, and then I, I had to go to Ipswich today, so... Is that, is that a long journey? Uh, it's longer than you think, believe it or not. It so it's about seems... six or seven miles and about three, three or four hours on, on those roads in your part of the world, yeah? Uh, not quite that bad, no, but <laughs> it's about an hour, I think, something like that. But uh... And how was the weather? Uh, the weather was uh, changeable. Uh <laughs> Changeable, very windy. Uh, it's uh, large, tall vehicles, and the Orwell Bridge are not the way forward. Let's let's put it that way. Uh, I was quite but glad. Are you to... technically classed as a high-sided vehicle? We are indeed. So actually, if they do close the the Orwell Bridge, we're not allowed over it. Uh, to high, if they say close to high-siders, then unfortunately that does include us. Um, but uh, however, until you topple over on your side, and then then you're okay. You can yeah, absolutely. The you know, just sort of skirt away along. You know, it's downhill over the bridge. It's fine. Uh, <laughs> anyway, this has got nothing to do and, with aviation. No, <laughs> and to Al, have you been flying this week? Um, well, yes, actually. Uh, I popped down to Redhill, which was very near uh, Gatwick. So mm. I went down the day before yesterday, spent the night down there, and then came back yesterday. I managed to fit in a very 
a quick lunch with Captain Nick from the APG Aww. crew. And uh, he was very generous, actually. He bought my lunch. Aww. So thanks very much for that, Nick. Gosh. I am much appreciative. Very nice indeed. And uh, what about you, Pip? You've been uh, busy this week too? Yes, very busy. Like I just said, uh, six days at work. It's meant to be getting into our low season, but there doesn't seem to be any sign of that happening. It's been very busy, nonstop, four legs most days. Um, yeah, all systems go at work. Nice. Well, and, on the, sorry, go on. No, I was just about to say, I've only got four days off as well, uh, instead of my usual five or six, and then I'm back uh, off uh, to the States on Wednesday morning. Oh. But you managed to make a, a destination this week, if I uh, remember rightly. And oh, yes, 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 very I'm, exciting. I to say this, but yeah, I, I'm guessing that it's okay. So you uh, you fulfilled a little of a, um, a sort of lifetime ambition, sort have you not? bucket list type thing. Yeah, well, I wouldn't go that far, but um, yes, I finally got to go to The Rock, otherwise known as Gibraltar. Ah. Okay. After all these years, yes, Al and I have spoken about Gibraltar for um, for ages, uh, and I just never seem to go there. It always comes up on my my schedule, but then something always happens, and the schedule changes, and I go somewhere else. So when it came up again this week, I was understandably a bit sceptical and thought, "Nah, not going to get to go there." Uh, but lo and behold, everything came together, and uh, we flew down from Glasgow, of all places, to Gibraltar. So now, now this is this is one of those things that I, I ask the question, because it's like with anything, like, you know, when it's on the bucket list or it's somewhere you really want to go, I mean, did it disappoint? They say never meet your he- heroes and, and that kind of thing, don't they? Did it disappoint? Funny you should mention that. Um, in a way, because Al, the context in which Al and I have always talked about it is from a sort of a challenging airport point of view. Uh, and Al has always bigged it up you know, it was always sort of right. talked it up as a real macho place to go because it's so difficult and only real pilots can fly there. Oh, good. Uh, <laughs> so actually, when when we did go there earlier in the week and uh, there was not a breath of wind, oh. it was a perfectly calm day, <laughs> no hassles whatsoever, right. one of the easiest landings you've ever, landings yeah. I've ever made. Okay, so that, yeah, right, it's an airport yeah. for, for wimps, actually. Okay, right. Okay. Um, but no, but on the other hand, it was a, a lovely place to go just to, uh, I don't know if you guys have been there. I've seen Nev and uh, Al, I know you have, but uh, it's a lovely place to um, just go and, and look at the, you know, the rock there and, um, so just I, take it all in. It's beautiful, Al. I'm, I'm just going to ask the, the, the question here. Obviously, you, you you talk about it as as one of those places that, that, that can be difficult to fly in. I mean, what is it? Is it wind uh, factors and things like that? I mean, what is it that makes it so challenging? Under it's a, it's a combination of factors. Uh, it's a relatively short runway with water at both ends. Um, there are wind issues. Uh, there. The rock itself has its own microclimate, um, so you can have thick fog at one end of the runway <laughs> and it'd be perfectly clear at the other. And then there are the political issues. The airport sits incredibly close to the border with Spain, so manoeuvring uh, requires you to stay in, in Gibraltar airspace. And, of course, the the jurisdiction of Gibraltar has been disputed by the Spanish for as long as we've been there so they like to play some games from time to time so it's a combination of factors okay as Pips found out you go there on a nice day and it's not challenging at all and that is to be honest the the case for probably at least 75 percent of the time right Um, but the other 25 percent of the time it can be very challenging Mm. The, the only surprise and the only challenge was the contaminated runway you know, when we go into our, all our data, we have uh, performance figures for 
a wet runway for a snow covered runway and slush and all this kind of thing. But I wasn't prepared for the uh, thick layer of bird poo uh, oh, oh. all over the runway. That was oh. a bit of a shock. <laughs> bit I've never seen a runway in an apron so covered in bird crap. <laughs> Unbelievable. I don't know what sort of birds they've got there. And um, very oil, big oil from, oil from the cars and vans yeah, across the runway as well. Yeah, well, yeah absolutely. Like I say, yes. made, for, made for very slippery. Uh, conditions anyway we probably should uh, get things underway what do you reckon Ev? yes i uh, just for a very quick one on that um, i'm off to gibraltar uh, first november to go and have a chat with the uh, the boys in the tower there which is oh, very nice okay. so i'll be doing an article and some video on that uh, later okay. in the year uh, but just at the start of this week i went on what i think is going to be my oh, yeah. final ever boeing 767 flight from british airways oh yeah cool uh, i was went to Amsterdam and back just for the day but I went out on a 767 looking forward to coming back on one as well I thought, oh, I'll just have a word with the crew because it'll be the, their last sector quick chat you know blah 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 and of course they replaced it with an A321 so, okay did it go so, tech by any chance no, I, probably <laughs> Was um, it still in Amsterdam from the morning? It might have been. It probably never made it out. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's still there. It yeah. limped into Amsterdam after yeah. the whole forty minutes that it stressed <laughs> itself in the air. It's, it's quite a distance, isn't it, for that long-range aircraft? Anyway, so um, that was it. Right. So I think we should have a look at the uh, civil aviation. What do you think, guys? Yeah. Let's let let's do it. Here we go. Okay. First story is on the Daily Mail website, uh, which is where we get all our aviation information from, as you know. And uh, <laughs> poor old BA have had another bit of a mess with the IT. Uh, actually, again. this is and hot uh, off the presses, isn't it? Because it, it was literally four o'clock today it was published, wasn't it? So yes, it's very it hot off the presses. And, um, well, BA passengers have had a have been delayed again after apparent computer failure hit the airline's uh, Heathrow Terminal 5. Uh, customers complained of queues at the London airport and difficulties checking in after what the company called a technical issue with some of our internal systems. Uh, broadcaster Andrew Neal was among those caught up in the problems. Why that's relevant? I don't know. Uh, he tweeted, yet another computer failure at Terminal 5 Heathrow for British Airways. Now, regular occurrence, flight delayed, usual shambles, not yet on huge scale. Uh, the plane is ready to take off, but we're stuck waiting in the terminal because the computer system for boarding is down and there's no backup system. Uh, Seb Riley wrote, I think somebody at your organisation should press Control alt delete and start again. <laughs> uh, you ha and there's f further comments. Uh, you have a new problem uh, or excuse every day. You're losing loyal customers across the board. And once your once prestigious brand is now in the gutter. Shameful. Uh, despite the slew of comments and complaints, a company spokesman insisted to Mail Online that there was not a computer failure at Terminal 5. She said a temporary glitch with some of our internal systems has been resolved and our customers have continued to check in and fly to their destinations as normal. Uh, earlier, the airline posted a tweet saying, we are working to resolve a technical issue with some of our internal systems, including our call centers. Flights are continuing to operate and customers are able to check in as normal. And they tweeted to another customer. Um, uh, it's not very helpful because the page is just frozen, uh, but you get the idea. Uh, you know, they, they've, they've gone through another, another phase of this again, and it's a bit unfortunate for them because they, they do 
tend to come sort of one after the other and it just uh, just makes for a bit of a bit of a big problem because obviously most BA flights uh, depart from Terminal 5 and arrive there as well as so a few from Terminal 3 these mm. days but um, yeah so uh, what do you think uh, Al? Well it begs the question when is a glitch not a fault? <laughs> <laughs> right yes it wasn't a fault it was a glitch right oh, okay, okay. Well, i'm not gonna get the dictionary out but I, i'd say that they were one and the same yeah yes yeah i can yeah. see where you go with that yeah it's just... I, I came through terminal five just a, a few hours ago actually and everything seemed to be running pretty smoothly so no sign of any uh of any right. chaos um i think ba's problem uh, as has been pointed out numerous times this last few months with all the the glitches that they've had is that in their efforts to cut costs and be competitive they've outsourced a lot of their their it provisions to i don't know companies in places in the world where perhaps uh you wouldn't want to outsource them to yeah and uh, there seems to be failing on all sorts of of levels um you know we had the credit card thing the other week yeah. and this that's going to cost them a lot of things. money that credit card thing uh, yeah, maybe so. Uh, I, in fact, funny enough, I was just catching up on some PT UK as I drove home this afternoon, and you were saying, "Oh, well, maybe it's this third party yes. who are responsible yeah, for the credit card thing, and they're going to they're going to fit the bill." But I doubt it. Ultimately, it's BA who are responsible for this. It's their yeah, you know, it's their customers. Yeah, um, I mean, I, the, 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 they, they, they've got a responsibility to be, if they're outsourcing, fair enough, yeah. but they've got a responsibility to be oh, no, outsourcing I mean, it to the right people. Uh, you know, what, what we were, were saying, Pip, is I mean, the buck will essentially stop with BA, but, you know, BA are going to be countersuing these people who basically yeah, didn't handle so. the card payments correctly that that's that's what it sort of boiled down yeah. to but i think it, but, i think um, i think it's safe uh, to say that they, i don't know what it is but uh ba ba do seem to be having a lot of it related issues shall we say and we don't seem to be experiencing those same hiccups with a lot of the other airlines i mean when well because they keep all their it in-house i think yeah yeah but uh, uh, on the other hand i do have to say Considering that I'm I'm uh, flying BA on Wednesday morning to Chicago okay. and I'm hoping to get an upgrade. But I love BA; they're the best airline ever. So if anyone from BA is watching, please can I have an upgrade on Wednesday? Right. Please don't make please don't make me sit in row fifty on the seven four seven, please. <laughs> For nine hours. What's so bad you about like row that row? <laughs> no, that's, that's, I don't like that row. That's one of your favourite rows. Anything. <laughs> Further back about row now. four is not my favourite row. <laughs> right, okay. Right, okay. Anything that's not in business class, you're not a fan. Yeah. Of, I assume. Okay, all right. Well, uh, Unfortunately, my cheapskate company won't pay for business class travel when we're, when we're going for training <laughs> duty. Okay, all right. Well, before, before you end up in trouble with someone, yeah. we're going to move on to the next story. This is uh, story two. It's a Ryanair story, as always. It's on the BBC News website, bbc.co.uk, and the headline is Italy opens probe into Ryanair hand luggage charges. Now, I must admit, I, I was quite surprised that somebody hasn't done this before, uh, if I'm honest, because, I mean, every week we seem to be reading a story out where the, the rules have changed yet again. So uh, Italy opened his fair share of probes. <laughs> oh no! Uh, <clears throat> Italy's competition watchdog has opened an inquiry into Ryanair's decision to add new hand luggage charges. From November, Italian passengers wishing to take two bags on board will pay six euros—that's five pounds—for priority boarding. Those that do not uh, that do not will only be able to take on 
one bag that fits under the seat in front, with the second bag checked in at a cost of €8. Euros. Uh, is it Antitrust said that the hand luggage was an essential element of transport and should be included in the ticket price. Some travellers only carry their 10 kilogram or £22 standard wheelie bag. Ryanair spokesman Kenny Jacobs, oh, we do love a statement from Jenny. Kenny Jacobs, says, We look forward to cooperating with this Italian inquiry. All Ryanair customers are free to bring one piece of carry on uh, on board, uh, but no airline customer has a right to unlimited carry on bags. UK rules applied by Ryanair allow passengers to take two pieces of hand luggage into the aircraft if they have paid £5 for priority boarding. Uh, if they have not paid that charge, the second bag is put in the hold, albeit without being charged as checked luggage. Antitrust said that Ryanair's new Italian policy could amount to unfair commercial practice in that it distorts the final price of the ticket and does not allow a true comparison with other airline prices. Italian consumer associations uh, had complained to Antitrust about Ryanair's decision. If its unfair commercial practice on hand luggage is confirmed, Ryanair should reimburse all its customers who suffer unfair additional costs. The uh, I, w I won't go on. I mean, you basically get the the gist of it. But I mean, what are we thinking about this? I mean, part part of part of me is thinking, frankly, as long as you you know, as long as they're being upfront at the start about that it's going to cost you eight euros or whatever to put your bag. Does it? You know, I mean, they they're still cheap flights. The, the problem is, is that no one has a solution for this problem with hand baggage. Yeah. Because uh, in many respects, the airlines don't really want to put bags in the hold because then they have to pay people to load okay. them and unload them. And the passengers want to take as much luggage as they possibly can with them for mm. free. So we just have, you know, this balance until we start having the regulators allow roof racks on the top of aircraft, then um, we're always going to struggle to find room to put mm. bags in the cabin. Uh, and the, the manufacturers have produced bigger and bigger hat bins for bags, mm. but ultimately um, we just don't have the space. And, you know, with the advent of the low-cost airlines where, uh, you know, it's all one class and we've got as many bums on seats as you can possibly fit in that space... Um, everyone generally brings a bag. So the airlines just keep going round and round in circles. Mm. I don't know how many times Ryanair have changed their bag policy. Quite a few and, Quite a few in the last few weeks, it has to be said. Yes. Yeah. Um, so, you know, it, it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy, really, in causing widespread confusion amongst their customers. Yeah. Because depending on when you booked your ticket determines what the policy was yeah. at the time and then obviously they've changed the policy and then have said well depending on when you booked your ticket some people will be able to yeah. carry on board what they thought they were going to be able to and others not and undoubtedly there'll be another change in a few months so yeah where where do we go from here it's yeah. just chaos absolute chaos and i feel sorry for the public yeah absolutely and uh, again i'm not helped by the fact that of course they keep ch when when they've been changing the store the, the the policy uh sometimes they're saying it's like with immediate effect so those who've already booked their ticket are still going to be subject to these alterations but they may not necessarily know about it you know and they say that they've sent somebody an email but let's be honest half of your Ryanair emails end up in the junk bin anyway so it's just sort of yeah as you say it is it's the public who are going to suffer essentially mm. well it's up to the public to to vote with their feet but there's obviously no sign of that happening so yeah, but what's the alternative yeah one of the difficulties for the public and I, I'm 
seeing the other side of the, the story here is that a lot of the low-cost carriers operate routes that no one else would undertake. So voting with your feet, yes, if you're flying, you know, London to Amsterdam, you've got plenty of choice. But if you're flying from the back end of nowhere to the backside of nowhere, and there's only one airline that does that route, then you're kind of stuck, really. Yeah. So I know what you mean, Pip, and unfortunately, it will never change because there is this, you know, almost perverse sense that the customer's not right. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm going to push this sort of like back to, to Nev, actually. Let, let's let's uh, look at this from the other way. I mean, the, the Ryanair thing seems very, um, you know, they are, even if you were having to pay the eight euros or whatever to have the stuff put in the hold, it does seem still very cheap to say a standard BA ticket to the same place. Well, yeah, and I think the thing we do lose sight of, and I'm not really of a support of this argument, no, no, no. but we have to say it. Let's be honest, uh, Ryanair and EasyJet and other low-cost carriers have enabled uh, travel for families that just would Everyone. not have been possible previously. Yeah. I go back to, you know, in, in my professional life, uh, exhibitions that I used to do in Geneva back in 1998 or whatever it was, and it was uh, British Airways or Swiss Air, and that was it. And yeah. that was the those uh, your only two they, options. They chose what the fare was going to be between yeah. them, and it wouldn't matter how expensive it was; mm. you would have to pay it. Now there's a lot more choice, and I think, especially if you're taking uh, families with you, uh, those low-cost carriers obviously do a, you know provide a, a good service. Where it goes slightly wrong is where we have all these constant rule changes. And mm. uh, I say my <clears throat> friend of mine in Sweden, she uh, considered herself an expert on <laughs> exactly what she could and couldn't take on Ryanair yeah. at any stage because she's a regular commuter to and from Sweden. But even she's going, Nev, I can't even keep up with this anymore. It's, they, they, it's just they're just making it too difficult. So on the basis that it's it's still you know a pretty cheap way to get around, you are going to have these uh, challenges. I think definitely. Do you Indeed. think that? Ryanair change their policy deliberately to confuse, or do you think that they're just trying to react to the changing market? I, I'm fifty-fifty on that. I, I'm I, I wouldn't like to say one way or the other, but it, I do smell a, a little bit of a rat. Shall we say? Yeah. yeah. It's um, it's one of those sort of situations where you look at this and you think, right, okay, well, I, I want to go on this flight, and I need to take you know a handbag with me, and I need to do this and that. And then, you know, your, your, your bag ends up in the hold because you haven't paid the, the eight euros. And you might have things that you have in that bag that you weren't intending to go into the hold because they may be fragile. Or indeed, the bag that you brought was, you know, of a, a nature where, uh, you know, it's soft-sided or whatever. Mm. And uh, then you, you're completely and utterly in the vagaries of the handling companies and how they treat your luggage. Yeah. Yes, and of course, uh, there there is a, a small issue with that, as you were just saying to me in a message just now, um, Al. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure that quite a few of the uh, the listeners of viewers have seen a video that's been circulating uh, over the last sort of 36 hours of a, a baggage handler uh, working at Manchester Airport, and it happens to be a Ryanair flight. And uh, I think it's probably fair to say that there's not much due diligence on his part in the way he's handling the bags. 
Indeed, I'm just playing that video now. Uh, that you, as you, as you mention it here, it's safe to say they're basically going onto the trolley. For those of you listening online, the the video is uh, listening on the audio version. They're going onto the trolley and then they're immediately falling straight out the other side. I don't. He really couldn't give a monkey's could he? There's uh, a plus side to this though, in in that uh, considering that the most of the baggage has an, the uh, aerodynamics of a brick, he's got some good speed out of it. Actually. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, it's, it's flying through the air. There's yeah. some good. But, but yeah. you imagine as a passenger that that's your bag that's ended up yes. in the hole which you'd never planned for it to go into the hole yeah, because you've been caught out by the by the policy changes or, or you've not paid the eight euros yeah uh and you know aunt nelly's ashes are you know just in a horrible mess inside your suitcase now <laughs> Oh dear, yeah, that that that, that is true. Well, and I, again, I mean, I go back to when I was again flying Ryanair, and I had my one of my best friends. His wedding video is was on my hard drive, and I'm coming back from um, Edinburgh, and and it's like, no, I'm afraid your bag is going to have to go in the hold. And I I did actually, I did get my own way actually, but I did kick up a real fuss saying no, because uh, I, I don't trust you not to. As I say, it's nothing to do with you specifically, but I, I need this bag to be well cared for because of its content you know um i mean i got lucky and they they took pity on me but um you know as you say this this video that we're referring to here i mean it's that's the thing isn't it this is why people want to take their bags on board and i you know i suppose this is why this is why they'll, they'll always get away with it is people would rather pay the extra eight euros i think it was to to sort of take the, the take it you know to pay priority boarding and essentially bring the bag with you um, I think that's you know why people are you know why they're getting away with us. They're getting an extra eight euros for for every flight. Neil uh, in the chat room sums it up nicely. He says uh, the way to get around this is to pay for priority boarding. Uh, otherwise, when you by the time you uh, join the back of the queue, the rules have changed. By the time you get to the front, <laughs> <laughs> nice Neil. Yes, very good Neil. Very good. Of course, there is another issue with that though. Actually, again, one of the stories that we followed last week, um, either last week or the week before, is that there is a limit to the amount of people who can have priority boarding. Indeed. So, so it's yeah, it's it's a real minefield, isn't it? It's uh, well, as I say, at the end of the day, Ryanair can do whatever the heck they like because so if it weren't for Ryanair, a super priority boarding, you know, it just goes on and on and on, doesn't <laughs> yeah. it? You know, yeah, indeed. As I say, but I, I, I'm going I'm going to defend them a little bit here and say that if it wasn't for uh, Ryanair, I wouldn't have had a couple of the most amazing experiences that I've had in the last sort of year or so. Uh, one of obviously, which was my trip to Toulouse, that was with uh, Ryanair. Ryanair, and then uh, three days in Ro Rome uh, to go and meet uh, the legend that was Sir Grant of McCarran. Uh, and if it hadn't have been for Ryanair, those... Has he passed away? No, he hasn't. <laughs> <laughs> oh, OK. Just the way you said he was. I mean... Uh... Yeah, yeah, no, no, no. Yeah, yeah, you know, it's uh, it's an ever-movable beast. You know, beast. One minute he is a legend, and then, you know, anyway. Uh, <laughs> but, so he goes from legend to persona non grata to dead in a matter of a sentence. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks for that hole that I'll never be able to dig myself out of. Thanks, uh, but uh, yeah. So uh, as I say, I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna stick up for Ryan here, Ryan Air here, and say yes. Okay, they keep changing the rules. It is annoying, but if it wasn't for them, then two of the most amazing experiences that I've had in my life would not have taken place because I would never have been able to afford to do said things with another carrier. There you go. Excellent. You right, let's move on to the next story then. And uh, I think we should give this one to Al, actually. This could be quite an interesting uh, merger if, if this happens. Yes, uh, this comes from the uh, Telegraph business section. Uh, that's the telegraph.co.uk. And the headline is 
Emirates said to seek Etihad takeover to create the world's largest airline. Ooh. Persian Gulf airline Emirates is looking at taking over unprofitable neighbor Etihad. People familiar with the matter said in a move that would create the world's biggest carrier by passenger traffic. The talks, which are at a preliminary stage, would see Dubai-based Emirates acquire the main airline business of Abu Dhabi's Etihad, which would keep its maintenance arm, according to the people. The negotiations could yet fall through, they said. Any deal would require the blessing of the rulers of the richest sheikdoms in the United Arab Emirates. For Abu Dhabi, which sits on 6% of global oil reserves, it would advance a drive to overhaul state-controlled entities as it adapts to lower crude prices. The airlines have traditionally been arch-rivals with their hubs competing to attract the same transfer passengers, making long-distance trips between Asia and the West. An Emirates spokeswoman said the company doesn't comment on speculation, as did a spokesman for Etihad. Were a transaction to go ahead, the enlarged airline operation would be bigger than that of the American Airlines Group, which has a market value of 19.2 billion US dollars. Emirates Chairman Sheikh Ahmed bin Saeed Al Maktoum and President Tim Clark have previously played down speculation that the carriers might combine, with Al Maktoum saying in May that there has never been merger talks. Mr. Clark said in June that the question was one for the shareholders, while adding that he saw nothing happening in the short to medium term. A combination of the airlines would provide further evidence of the sheikdom's consolidating business to boost competitiveness. Abu Dhabi and Dubai companies formed Emirates Global Aluminium, one of the world's largest producers, in a $15 billion combination in 2013 and the two have studied a merger of their stock exchanges. The state was also the driving force in compelling Emirates to cooperate with local discount carrier Fly Dubai. Etihad has been shrinking its operations following the failure of so-called equity alliance strategy that saw it invest in a number of generally ailing foreign operators to help more traffic through Abu Dhabi. One of those, Air Berlin, collapsed last year, while another, Italy's Alitalia, filed for bankruptcy protection, causing the pact to largely unravel. The Mideast company also saw its own business come under pressure as a slide in the price of oil led to a drop in travel, drop, drop in, travel in crude-based companies. That contributed to a 1.52 billion loss in 2017, taking the two-year deficit of the airline unit to almost 3.5 billion US dollars. Wow. Fitch ratings last month said that it expected Etihad to continue losing money through 2022. These numbers are just phenomenal, aren't they? They are, you know, aren't like, they? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, I should just say, actually, whilst uh, the, the Al is reading that story, I should just say that uh, uh, another article that, that has come up, and I, you know, for the sake of balance, and here for the second time in 2018, both Emirates and Etihad have both publicly denied rumours suggesting that the two are in merger talks. So I would just sort of address the balance there that, that was tweeted sort of shortly after that article was released. But uh, yeah, I, you do wonder if there is something in this, though, when, when the rumours do keep popping up you know 
Yeah, with oh. the smokeless fire, right? Yeah, yeah, that 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 that's the thing. <laughs> I mean, what what do we think? Do we think the merger of uh, Etihad and Emirates would be a good thing? Well, I just think that uh, it's um, well, obviously they are two massive airlines in their own right with huge Middle Eastern hubs, and of course yeah. that's the advantage, isn't it? Especially for you know for going to Australia and, yeah. and what have you, and with the longer range aircraft that are coming uh, more and more now, yeah. I think it's it's you know that they are big carriers in their own right, but. I just can't see the, the the reason for an acquisition on, on either side. Really. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, I think from the, the consumer's point of view, it would um, it would take away a lot of the competition yeah. um, because the three main Middle Eastern carriers, Qatar, Etihad and Emirates, compete over a large chunk of the, the same routes. Yeah. You know, it's just a case of whether you route via Dubai, Abu Dhabi or Doha. So... You know, and geographically, they're all very close. So uh, a merger of the two of the three, yes, it would make it a huge airline. But I wonder whether it would um, cause prices to ultimately rise. Well, yes, I mean, less competition can can surely only mean, you know, bad news for the consumer, as, as, as you say. It's, uh, yeah, one, one, to be, one to keep an eye on, I think, Nev. Mm, indeed. Well, uh, <clears throat> is one for Pip, and uh, it's all about a bit of a fail with Cathay Pacific. <laughs> uh, a fail indeed, yeah. So this also comes from theguardian.com. Headline, Cathay Pacific spells his name wrong on the side of a plane. Wah, 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 wah. <laughs> yes. So have you got the pictures for this? I have indeed, there? yeah. I'm so bringing Matthew, them up now, you yeah. You need to see this. So Cathay Pacific has given visitors to Hong Kong Airport a surprise by spelling its name wrong on the side of a plane. The Boeing 777 was emblazoned with the words, and I'm not quite sure how we're going to say this, Cathay <laughs> Pacific. Pasic, yes. With, with so P A C I I C. Very good. Which, yes. as the more astute viewers will notice, is not how you spell Pacific. Uh, the company's social media team saw the funny side of the error, tweeting that the plane was being sent back to be repainted. Mm -hmm. uh, the image has been posted on the Hong Kong Aviation Discussion Board, a Facebook group for plane spotters. While the airline insisted the spelling error was a mistake, Duh, yes. Some <laughs> some had their doubts. Yeah. <laughs> An uh, engineer for uh, Heiko, a maintenance company operating in the region, told the South China Morning Post, the spacing is too on point for a mishap. Yeah. We have stencils. There should be a blank gap in letters, uh, in between letters, if it was a real mistake. Yeah. Well, I, I don't understand that. How can that not be anything other than I think what they're what they're essentially what what essentially what they're getting at is they they they're suggesting that it may have possibly been an organized PR stunt. Is... Oh I see, that didn't even occur to me. Yeah. What a, a weird why would that be a good thing? Uh, well, because we're all <laughs> sat here at, uh, you know, it's just coming up to 8 o'clock on a Friday evening and we're all sat here talking about it. So, well, it doesn't make me want to go and buy a, a ticket on Cathay Pacific. No, probably but, the opposite, to be no, honest. No, but to be fair, if, the, the, the name <laughs> is now in your head. I mean, the thing is, is it made BBC News, it made the news at 10. It, you know, it, it, coverage here in the UK has has been essentially, uh, you know, across the, across the board here and... and I don't know the the, the cynic. I'd like you to to picture, if you will, the the boardroom 
where all of the, the senior executives <laughs> of Cathay Pacific okay. all sat around. And the, the aged CEO is absolutely livid right. that this has taken place and is jumping up and down on his very, very expensive seat. And the other <laughs> senior executives are all very twitchy. And there is a 14-year-old spotty kid sat at the other end of the table. He is the head of their social media team. Okay, right. And he gently puts his hand up and says, but, but, sir, but, sir, the volume of hits on our website have doubled overnight. And the slightly <laughs> aged CEO sits down into his chair, scratches his chin and goes, very good, very good. Mm -hmm. In a way, I, I hope you're right, because surely... Yeah. There's no way on earth that no one could have noticed that before they before it tucked it out the, of the yeah. uh, hanger and put it back on the line. Yeah, I, I, and that's why I think it is a PR stunt. If I'm honest with you, but it's a very like, odd PR stunt. It is. A, yeah, well, you know, but you know, here we well, are. So there's no such thing as bad publicity. No, that's a very good point. Yeah. Now. Yeah. And I, I think that if you look at the, uh, the what the spelling that they've they've uh, managed to achieve with this, they've obviously. I, I think they've realised that they've spelt it wrong. You know, at the point where they should have put the correct letter in, but they just sort of carried on anyway, yeah. as if it was. You know, no one was going to notice. But, no, uh, indeed, yeah. it's just. It's, well, I'll, I'll, I'll happily buy a, a ticket with Cathay uh, Pasic. Cathay Pacific, I'm not too keen on it. must be on it. Right, okay, yeah. fair enough. Yeah, all right then. Uh, that's, a, that's an odd story, that one. Yeah. yeah well, as I say, no, no, you see, I mean, what, what, the way I'd run it now is that I would keep that airframe in that livery because yeah. it would become very mm. special. It's yeah. like these... Um, uh, and please excuse this little tangential uh, journey through my mind for our non-UK listeners. Brace but yourselves, everyone. It's like these 50 pence <laughs> coins that have got, you know, little characters on them. That oh, yeah, yeah, like the Peter Rabbit and things. To the, to the Royal Mill. But people are selling them for hundreds of pounds yeah. because they're, they're, they're special and, and they're rare. Well, this, this aircraft would be very rare and would have lots of people go to see it. So... Um, you know, I, I'm a little bit disappointed that it's going to go back in to be repainted. <laughs> yeah. mm. Are you thinking well, they're going to charge charge extra for special seats on said aeroplane? <laughs> yeah, given the uh, given the, the particular uh, spelling error there, I guess yeah. in their maintenance department that day, no one particularly gave an F. Oh, wow. <laughs> that's, well a, that's a good done. joke. That that's one. You good. Yeah, no, you're that that's one. a yeah. good joke, All I promise. Right. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah, almost. It straight out of Twitter. Well done, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> Retweet. <laughs> okay, uh, Nev, please dig us out of this hole. Uh, <laughs> well, our, uh, our Air Malta correspondent is missing today. He but is. that does not stop us uh, covering an Air Malta story. And this is on the uh, Aviation Herald website. And it says that an Air Malta Airbus A319-100... Registration 9 Hotel uh, AEJ performing KM100 from Malta to London Heathrow was accelerating the takeoff from Malta, Malta's runway 31 when the aircraft encountered a flock of birds causing multiple impacts prompting the crew to reject takeoff at a high speed at about 100 knots over the ground. The aircraft slowed safely, stopped about 2,100 metres down the runway for an inspection by emergency services, then taxied to the apron about eight minutes after the rejected takeoff. The aircraft was examined and cleaned, then departed again after about four hours on the ground and reached London with a delay of about three and a half hours. The local newspaper, Malta Today, used a file photo of an Air Malta aircraft having encountered multiple 
multiple bird strikes that looks like as if the aircraft was suffering from measles. <laughs> the file photo currently circulates the internet as photo of this current bird strike. So, uh, you know, oh, media fail again there. But um, uh, now, what do you think about stopping? Let's say it was 100 knots, Al. Um, that's just into the high speed regime, yes. I guess, isn't it? Yeah, now I know that this is a, a file photo, but if we assume that the uh, actual incident aircraft hit as many birds as the file photo, so, I mean, the statement says it was a flock of birds, um, yes, you are probably going to stop because what you don't want um, is a bird impaled on your probe. Oh, I, 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 I beg to differ. <laughs> Especially if you've got oh, wow. two. Yes. yes. Okay. Now, uh, Al, uh, being serious for a minute, and, and uh, before Matt's head explodes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, on a, a typically laden uh, A319, I'm guessing 100 knots uh, is below V1. Uh, yes, it would be. Yeah, it would be uh, on a. I mean, probably the 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 lowest V1 you're likely to see is around about 120 right. knots. Or something like okay. That. So. so Okay, no problem stopping there then. Okay. Uh, no, not at all. And uh, uh, joking aside, uh, yes, you could have uh, bird debris on uh, some of the sensitive parts of the aircraft. Um, so angle of attack sensor, uh, you could have uh, a bird on, on the pitot probe. Uh, you could have all sorts of uh, false indications as a result of the disturbed airflow. Um, and that's even before you start to think about what went into the engines. And uh you know if if you've hit that many birds then if you can stop then that's probably the right thing to do mm -hmm. yeah absolutely so, i mean let's so in in that situation obviously uh, al and pip presumably you'd have both done the same thing would you you'd have aborted takeoff and and sort of stopped uh yes okay good yeah almost certainly i mean our, our v1 which is the um, the speed above which you only stop for sort of serious things, if I can simplify it yeah. uh, that way. Um, our V1 speed is probably a, a little bit lower. In fact, it's a lot lower than uh, Al's Airbus is going to be. But yeah, uh, if we hit that many birds, I think, unless we're on a very short runway, um, we'll be stopping. Right, okay. I mean, actually, all jokes aside, I mean, it is, that's a, a heck of a, it's a, you've got seconds to make that decision, though, aren't you? Especially if you, so you're saying, like, if they're 100, uh, what, what was the figure? Sorry, explain. Uh, it? Well, it says 100 knots over the ground, but right. let's just okay. take that as 100 knots indicated. And I was saying sort of usually about, a, you know, sort of like 120. Stuff. I mean, there isn't, that isn't a big gap. Do you know what I mean? Especially when you're, if you're full throttle about to sort of go for it. That isn't well, a huge it sort gap. of depends how quickly you're accelerating down the runway. Um, I don't know, it's probably a few seconds worth. Yeah, about three. Yeah, so, so it's, it's, just, it's just sort of, it's, 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 what I'm getting at is essentially you've got a very short window yeah. to decide no Well, I mean, no you, you brief these things in advance. You, you largely know what you're going to be stopping for and what you're not. So the decision almost... Uh, is already made. Obviously, you can't brief every single thing that you might encounter, but you've got a pretty good idea of what's... Yeah, I mean, to give you sort of an example, a, a typical Airbus brief would go along the lines of, uh, we'll consider stopping for anything up to 100 knots. Right. Between 100 knots and V1, we were only stopped for an ECAM warning, an engine failure, an engine fire with or without thrust loss, a flight control problem, or anything that would prevent us from safely getting airborne. 
So the latter one there would come under the category of, well, if I think that there's been so many bird strikes that I've got concerns over airspeed indication, angle of attack indications, then that will be sufficient to stop the takeoff. Right. Yeah, and our brief is identical word for word, except we say ECAS rather than ECAM, but there you go. That's splitting hairs. Indeed. Okay, thanks for that, guys. Nev? Uh, yes, um, I can't really add any more to that, really, because... Um... <laughs> But uh, I think, yeah, obviously they made the right decision there. Yes, yeah, but you can sure. bet the Ryanair boys and girls were immediately onto the runway to uh, send all those birds to the catering department. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, with, with the, the subject of uh, birds in Malta, you go to Malta quite often, don't you, Pip? Yeah, every so often. Yeah, now I'm trying to remember, um, they have lots of sparrows in Malta and don't they shoot them? Oh. <laughs> I, I seem to recall that there's there's some sort of... Ornithological. Yeah, yeah. the the bird people aren't very happy about Maltese shooting lots of sparrows. Um, But we we do, in Europe, have various uh, times of year when lots of airports are plagued by birds. Um, And, um, you know, it is a big problem. And not just, you know, your big Gibraltar butch macho seagulls. uh, Ah, Let's say yeah, 20 or 30 <laughs> sparrows into an engine, it's still going to cause quite a lot of damage. So, um, um, you know, there is a, a lot to be said for managing wildlife on airports because these are the sort of problems that they cause. Uh, Neil Lamb was saying that's the migrating songbirds, Al, swallows, isn't it? Right, OK, I knew, I knew they did yeah. something there. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. Is that an African or a European swallow? OK. Uh, I don't know. So so that's <laughs> I think we need to do a whole episode just about uh, birds, don't we? Well, like I said, so that's two in the can now. We've got one about Brexit and uh, <laughs> one about birds. OK. Uh, I think we should move on, Nev. What do you reckon? Yes, and uh, you're going to take the next story, Matt. Oh, am I? The, oh, it's yes. me, is it? Yes. <laughs> I'm thinking somebody else's turn. Uh, right, OK, so we're moving. So this is, uh, is it the Airliner Watch? Is that the one? Yes. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, yeah so Airliner Watch. Sorry about that, ladies and gentlemen. I was too is busy. Is this the one that officially reveals that the TriStar was the worst aeroplane ever built? <laughs> <laughs> No. Uh, Airliner Watch is the uh, uh, communication and the headline is Boeing to launch the 797-NMA officially at Paris Air Show in June 2019. Do you know that's one of the things we ought to try and get to, you know, the Paris Air Show. Have either of you guys ever been? Um, No, it's it's very tradey. Oh, right. um, We'd never get in, essentially. (laughs) Well, it's very, very corporate and I don't... Don't think it's actually anywhere near as good for displays as as no. Farnborough. To okay. be honest, All right, it's then. not. I, I have been, and I had a, a very nice experience, uh, actually. Okay. Um, okay. But, oh, yes, well, but I probably need to move on from that. <laughs> 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 yeah, sure. No, I was very lucky. I was yeah. a couple of years ago, and just briefly, uh, we because um, the airfield shuts obviously while the air shows on, and we flew in to Le Bourget just before it shuts, and uh, we had to park somewhere a bit obscure because all the aprons were closed for the show. Uh, so we taxied over and parked up. And then we were there for a few hours while the air show was on. It was a lovely hot day, so I was able to get some nice cold drinks out and some pillows. And we sat up on the wing on the Hawker oh, wow. uh, and watched these fantastic uh, displays, which were immediately above us, which is a total no-no as far as spectators and air yeah. shows go. But um, it what? was fab. We, we could you feel the reheat 
off the jets as they were doing their manoeuvres barely a hundred cool feet above us. That was quite a special That is experience. a seriously cool experience. Yeah, no, I'll yeah. give you that. Yeah, absolutely. Anyway, uh, thank no, seriously. Uh, so Seattle, Dennis Muhlberg, the, Bo- the Boeing boss, revealed nothing new about Boeing's long-discussed NMA programme at Farnborough Air Show this year. But internally, Boeing follows a precise timeline for its new mid-market airplane that uh, is unofficially dubbed the 797 by the industry. Teams in Seattle are working towards a program launch announcement at the Paris Air Show in June 2019. John Ostroa reports in his blog The Air Current. Around $15 billion development cost of the 797 leaves little room for error. Uh, said Muhlenberg in the wake of the Farnborough Air Show in London last July. Since 2015, the idea of a mid-sized airliner with 228 to 268 seats is on the Boeing's agenda to fill the gap in the market. Here is the timeline of Boeing's NMA programme, according to the aviation journalist on John Ostroa. So in December 2018, the deadline for engine offers uh, from... That was the deadline for the engine offers from manufacturers. Uh, February 2019... Boeing makes its final decision for the engine. March 2019, airlines and leasing companies sign preliminary contracts. And June 2019, program launch of the 797 with the first customers at the Paris Air Show. Rolls-Royce is entering the engine tender. I bet people, I bet, I bet everyone's a bit nervous about that right now. Uh, with Trent's, Trent's successor geared ultrafan, according to reports earlier, uh, CFM throws a concept-based on the 777X engine, the GE9X, and Pratt & Whitney wants to offer an upgraded version of its PW1100G that powers the Airbus A321neo. Boeing's all-new commercial jetliner will have two variants, the 228-seat 797-6X with a range of 5,000 nautical miles and the 268-seat 797-7X with a range of 4,200 nautical miles. Delta, United, Norwegian and Air Lease Corporation are considered potential customers to receive the aircraft from 2025. Boeing's European rival Airbus is currently evaluating the feasibility of an A321XLR as a competitor to the 797 that could already be available in 2022. So the XLR, I presume, means extreme long range or something, does it? Or you can plug a mic into it. Or you can plug a mic into it, yes, absolutely. Yes, I wonder if it has phantom power, Nev. Anyway, yeah, <laughs> indeed. So, what, what are we thinking about that? I mean, it, it, I presume they're doing it because there is a call for these. What they call like the, the mid, air, you know, the, the mid-sized well, I, aircraft. I think there, there's this. Um, this is why um, there's a big sector in the market now between Boeing and Airbus for these uh, ultra-long-range um, uh, economical mm-hmm. uh, aircraft uh, for, for the long routes um, and. Um, yeah, it, it's very popular uh, with passengers, I think, and also the running costs yeah. are likely to be quite low as well, I would imagine. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, Absolutely. it looks like a um, looks like that that market um, with the A three twenty one XLR and A three twenty one Neo and the longer range triple seven. There's there's certainly the uh, uh, the market and the appetite for it. I think. Mm, agree. Very much so. I mean, it's it's the seven five seven replacement, isn't it? And yeah. seemingly. Boeing are not going to do a repeat of the 737 uh, where they just took a 737, put some new tellies in it, 
uh, give it a bit of a spruce up and called it a Max, you know, and uh, left the overhead panel looking like, you know, the 1950s when it was designed. Uh, so I guess they're starting from a, a clean sheet, uh, which will bring it with it some increased design costs and some problems. But um, I, I think it's the way to go because uh, there were a certain number of people saying, well, let's just snazz up the 757. But um, whilst it was a fantastic aeroplane, um, you know, there was so much of it that it needed to be snazzed up to meet the the, the new regulations and criteria that it was it was always going to be um, a bad decision in my humble opinion to do that so yep clean sheet and it is a very very big market because if we look at the carriers who were doing high density across the Atlantic uh, the likes of Norwegian um, you know the Uniteds who are operating the old continental 757s uh, there is a big market for, for doing this. And the 7.5 struggled a little bit at high seat volume uh, to do the Atlantic. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it it will be a success so long as Airbus don't beat them to it. And I think the 321 XLR uh, may well uh, beat them to it. And, uh, you know, the early bird gets the worm in this case. Mm, yeah, certainly. Um just moving on then to the next story, which is uh, for you, Pip. We we talk about lots of things on the show, but uh, uh, pilots' facial hair management is a new one, I think. Okay. Uh, actually, I wasn't prepared because I thought you were going to go to Al with this one, but that's oh, fine. Oh, I'm sorry. Yes, I, prob- I probably was, wasn't I? Okay, I can, I can, <laughs> yes. I can do the beard. <laughs> no, well, that was a good start. Fine. Fine, <laughs> Al can have it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll I'll use the beard then. So, uh, okay, so this comes from uh, Avweb, and it says, "Pilot beard ban debunked." Canadian researchers say they have debunked the long-held belief that facial hair interferes with the seal on pilot oxygen masks, and at least one airline has lifted its decade-old beard ban. Now, I should point out that it's only North America that has banned beards for pilots. And elsewhere in the developed world, we've not had an issue with beards. <laughs> and funnily enough, none of us have expired through having a beard. Right. But notwithstanding this, Air Canada, which commissioned the Simon Fraser University, uh, says that its pilots can now sport beards up to a maximum length of 12.5 millimetres. Oh, it's half an inch. I thought that was a very precise uh, measurement. And neatly trimmed. So obviously there's going to be in crew rooms now people going around saying, "Can I measure your bush?" Okay. <laughs> so the airline hasn't exactly said why it paid the Environmental Medicine and Psychology Unit at SFO to test the beard hypotheses in its hyperbaric chamber, but the facilities director was unequivocal about the results. The no beard policy was based on an outdated research on obsolete equipment and testing on respirators not intended for aircrew oxygen delivery. We found no adverse effects on bearded subjects within the two parameters of our study, said Sherry Ferguson. So there we have it. The Canadians have proved what everyone else has known for years, that there's <laughs> nothing wrong in having a beard. Right. Good. Uh... <laughs> um, Pip, have you got anything to add to that? <laughs> 
Danger, Will Robinson, danger. Well, only more double entendres and dirty <laughs> jokes, so you may as well move on. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear. Right, well, luckily, well, uh, the, uh, the next story is for you, Pip. Um, actually, just before we move on, oh, yes. um, there was a long time ago some relevance to this because a lot has been made about the fact that the, uh, the facial hair um, on ladies and gentlemen will prevent the, the oxygen mask in the event of a depressurization uh, from fitting properly. Uh, but also, uh, because it's pure oxygen that comes out of that mask initially, uh, there has been fears in the past that for ladies and gentlemen who wear mm -hmm. beard wax, that the beard wax in the presence of pure oxygen might combust. So really? I am not aware of too many uh, ladies and gents wearing wax on their facial hair these days. So uh, I think we can pretty much put this story into the history bin. And is, is, it's not actually oxygen cylinders, is it, that's in the... In the, the it is it, for the pilots. Yes. Is it? Right, okay. It comes straight out of a bottle, whereas the passengers, it's a, a chemical yeah, reaction. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And okay. it's, it's sort of mixed with cabin air. But no, for us, it's, it's um, bottled. It's the good stuff. 100% oh. pure <laughs> Colombian oxygen. oxygen. Yes. Okay, very It's good. actually more pure than medical or medicinal oxygen. Is it? Really? Yes. Why is that? Yeah. Why are um, you so special? <laughs> it's good stuff as well. I often um, oh, do you? Leave right. Morning, if I'm you know not quite with it, we'll whip out the mask and have a good old suck. R right. Okay. Good. Uh, that's mask. not something you can't beat a good suck first that's thing in the morning. Obviously, yeah, not something not. that we should be confessing here on plain talking. Well, no, no, it's a testing procedure. <laughs> oh, um, I see. Oh, okay. All right. Because <laughs> yeah. when you go on the aircraft, you do need to make sure that it's working properly. So okay. it, it needs to be rigorously tested. Okay. Yes. Mm. What, no, and generally, there's nothing wrong with uh, uh taking the oxygen mask out and, and sticking it on your face for a bit okay <laughs> just just and in fact in the states is a, a required thing above certain altitudes isn't it if uh, one pilot leaves the cockpit the other guy has to stick the mask on okay. absolutely and breathe it we don't have that here as, as al said we're in a slightly more enlightened part of the world right. well we've joined the 21st century we eat with knives and forks not our hands yeah, yeah. no actually I, I must I must just stick up for our American friends here I, there's certainly uh, an amount of common sense in that rule um, I do I must admit when on the lemon now we're regularly going up to 45,000 feet mm. uh, and the time of useful consciousness up there if, uh, if the, one of the doors goes pop is literally a few seconds and unfortunately we don't have the full Eros mask uh, on the Phenom, it's a it's a double uh, affair, and it's just not quite as handy dandy as as the Hawker and other aeroplanes was. So it does take a few seconds to whip it out and untangle the thing and get it on your face. So you know, if we're up there at forty five thousand, and he goes to the loo or something, then I, I do quite often just at least take it out and have it on my lap. Right. <laughs> wow. Just to say, you know, just just in case, in that one in a million chance that we do get a sudden rapid depressurization, just an extra few seconds, I might save Could myself make all the to, difference. to put the mask on. Yeah, indeed. I can't read any of the comments out that are in the chat room currently, which is a real shame. But uh, and of but, course, I, when I am on my own in the cockpit, I'd like to put it on and do Darth Vader. Of course, absolutely. It must be a, a you know. <laughs> That sort of thing. Yes. Yes. Very yes. Uh, Neil. Neil. Neil yeah. So <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit. So Neil Lamwon says that whipping it out at 45,000 feet is always risky. Um, that's uh, concerning. You've got to be quick, haven't you? Yeah. Well, indeed. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, it, it, fans, because of the air. Uh, uh, yeah. 
<laughs> right, okay, danger. Uh, Nev, help, help, Nev, please, please. Uh, God. Well, this, um, <laughs> I think this story might uh, suit Pip actually. Oh, sorry, you're right. I, I've been babbling away. And not <laughs> oh yeah. Idea what story oh, you're supposed to be reading the story. Who's <laughs> <laughs> he whipping it out? <laughs> number eight. <laughs> Loaded it up. Yes. Number eight. Oh, right. Here we go. So I'm going to mention. In at number eight. <laughs> in at number eight. If I can get the flipping story to load up, I'm going to mention. In one. Sorry. No. A dirty word, if I may. <laughs> oh. Oh. A disgusting, filthy word. Oh dear, is it which Boeing? Every, everyone's going to suck their teeth and go... <laughs> okay. Um, Tri-star? No, sorry. <laughs> no, and at least I think the story's to do with that. And it's the, the B word. Boeing? Brexit. Brexit. Oh, oh. oh dear. Oh. Oh, I'm glad I was sat so, down for that. This uh, is... Um, the story is from the ch-aviation.com website. EasyJet shifts pilot's licenses from the UK to Austria. Ooh. And this is a bit of a, a Brexit-related thing. So EasyJet, um, which is based in London, Luton, has said it would assist its 1,400 pilots. No, EasyJet's got way more than 1,400 pilots, surely. I'm sure they are, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, they've got, uh, what, about 300 aircraft, I guess, have they? So, yeah, yeah, I think it's more. Than, maybe that's just the UK pilots. Yes, I think that probably is. Yes. Okay, let's start again. Uh, EasyJet UK has said it will assist its 1,400 pilots to relocate their licences from the United Kingdom jurisdiction to Austria as part of preparations for the worst-case scenario no-deal Brexit. See, I told you it was about Brexit. Uh, depending, this is a quote from someone, depending on the outcome of the Brexit negotiations, UK-issued pilot licences after the UK leaves the European Union could no longer be valid within the EU. That's why we have worked with the UK's CAA and Austro control to come up with a solution, the airline spokesperson said. The process of relocation is due to commence in November 2018. It would only include pilots who would continue to be employed by EasyJet and EasyJet UK. Pilots only operating within the UK or holding German-issued pilot licenses will be excluded. Hmm. Why German pilot licenses? Uh, the UK said uh, should leave the Euro- European Union by the end of March 2019, although it is so far not clear on what terms that will happen and whether there will be a transition period. Uh, let me read the last sentence. Besides setting up a separate UK unit, EasyJet already launched an Austrian subsidiary, EasyJet Europe, uh, which is based in Vienna, to prevent adverse effects of a no-deal Brexit. So there you go. Hmm. Yes, I must admit, uh, uh, Theresa May has been on telly today, hasn't she, sort of talking about uh, uh, said subject. But uh, forgive my naivety here, perhaps I've not understood the story correctly, but presumably... What what's confusing me a little bit about this is saying you know that how they you know they the UK um, issued licenses after the UK leaves the European Union could no longer be valid but presumably uh, pilots well, they, they but, but, but pilots in the US presumably can land here at Heathrow I mean yeah no that's that's not the issue um, so I, I don't know the exact setup of EasyJet but so if you've got an, a UK pilot uh, a CAA registered licensed pilot i should say flying yeah. on a, a g-registered aircraft so a right. uk registered aircraft there's not going to be an issue there but i think easyjet also have some aircraft uh registered in other places like switzerland right which will then fall and austria so. and austria so that those aircraft fall under the jurisdiction of those countries which okay. are part of the easa domain which is the 
the European-wide uh, licensing authority. So if, potentially, one scenario is if we leave the Brexit with no deal, then our UK CAA is no longer part of the ASA. And therefore, there's no sort of cross-agreement for UK licensed pilots to be flying European-registered aircraft. Right. Okay. Uh, is that a serious... I mean... Well, I mean... <laughs> Potentially, I mean, it's only paperwork. It's only red tape you're talking about. It's not like suddenly UK pilots uh, don't know how to fly a yeah. European registered aircraft. You know, nothing's changed. It's just a paper. It's just a signature somewhere. Uh, but it's you know, it's all politics. It's just yeah. I must yeah. admit, I'm getting quite bored of politics now. It has yeah. to be. I yeah. have to be. But honest. I mean, my, my uh, company is in a very similar situation, and you know, it's almost October already and we're still not sure no. how we're going to play it because we approximately a third of our pilots are Brits with UK licenses we're, and we're flying exclusively uh, European registered aircraft all our aircraft are registered right. in Portugal um, and so we're governed at least the flying operation side is governed by uh, ANAC which is the, the Portuguese flying authority right. so we've got a bit of a conundrum whereas you know we've got now several hundred pilots with UK licenses who potentially can't fly our aircraft come next next April. Right. Hmm. But even more than that, here's a funny one. We might potentially have no pilots <laughs> who could fly our aircraft because all of our sim instructors and examiners, and in fact the sims, the simulators themselves, uh, whether they're located here in UK or across in the States, are authorised by the UK CAA. So right. we might have a situation where the European pilots who can fly the aircraft, but they can't go to the sims and they can't have their licenses validated by the UK registered examiners. <laughs> because they're and at not the same time, of, we can yeah. have our licenses. The UK pilots can have their licenses authorised by UK examiners, but we can't fly the European aircraft. So it's all, it's all a bit silly. But potentially quite serious. <laughs> potentially quite serious. I'm, I would wager heavily that all this will be sorted with some, some solution deal be, or some yeah. transition period a common sense i'm sure will, will eventually prevail prevail. at some point before march the way it will go is kind of how i envisaged things were discussed in the immediate aftermath of september the 11th in 2001 in the united states where some politician said right that's it we're not having anybody traveling on the jump seat anymore that's it we're not having you know that risk and then someone piped up and said, uh, actually, none of the airlines will be able to operate any flights. <laughs> oh, okay, well, that's okay then. We'll, we'll, we'll let them carry on. Yeah. And this will be a very sort of similar set of circumstances. Mm. The politicians will all make these big statements and there will be these, these various political manoeuvrings. And come with the moment, uh, you know, EasyJet are going to be affected, BA will be affected, there will be very few unaffected airlines. Mm. So someone is, again, in the end going to go, well, just carry on for the time being and we'll sort it out. Yeah, yeah, this is this is a good point. It's uh, uh, Neil has suggested in the chat room perhaps that uh, it's almost as if nobody planned this, uh, <laughs> <laughs> which I think is quite, uh, quite an interesting one. It's just, uh, yeah, I don't know. And... I don't know. I, I'd like to think that eventually common sense will prevail and all this silly nonsense will be... Well, but you, you would think so, but then you look at the people managing this on our behalf and you do have to right. wonder. Okay. Uh, 
because there's not a, a shred of common sense amongst them. Wow, that's um, yes, uh, right. Okay. Uh, well, I think the they've... problem is with <laughs> most politicians, they're so far removed from mm. you know the regular person. Yeah, that, that they live in a bubble, and um, you know most of this will largely not affect them. Mm. So they, you know, it's like I can't remember who it was. Was it? David Cameron, who was asked about the price of a loaf of bread and a pint of milk, and, you know, he broadly confessed he didn't have a clue. Uh, and <laughs> the, these politicians are going to be totally and utterly clueless about the effects, regardless of which side of the, you know, which camp you sit in. Um, and I genuinely believe that, you know, it will take years to sort out, but it will yeah. be, um, you know, because That's the world's thing. not going to come to a, an end. Yeah, I mean, you can't expect the, uh, the politicians to have a, a sort of in-depth grasp of all the issues, but they, you, they've got to give a chance to the people who do have a grasp to sort this out. And if we, you know, like I say, it's October already, and we're looking at uh, pulling, you know, pressing the big red button at the end well, of March, just a few months yeah. away, you know, you've got to give the, the authorities a, a chance to sort this out. And they're but, leaving it yeah, jolly late. I suppose uh, in defence of the authorities involved, of course, because nobody's made their mind up about what actually is going to happen, it's difficult for those authorities then to, to plan for something that they don't know exactly, yeah. is what they have. But I suppose I mean, one I'm, advantage then, possibly is that it affects them, you know, the other side, if you want to be adversarial about it, it affects them almost as much as it affects us. Yeah, so it's not, in everyone's interest to sort this nonsense out. Indeed. Anyway, uh, we're, we're in danger of having a Brexit-related conversation, so we're going to move on. Well, I didn't Nev. warn you. Yeah, Nev, abort. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <clears throat> right, this is an interesting one on the BBC website, and just, uh, I think it was uh, yesterday, this was uh, this went out, and um, it's all about uh, Jet Airways, and it says that more than 30 Indian passengers, some bleeding from their noses oh. and ears, have received treatment after pilots forgot to turn on a switch regulating cabin pressure. Oh, wow. Said. Uh, Jet Airways Flight 9W697 uh, from Mumbai to Jaipur turned back shortly after takeoff. Uh, videos tweeted by passengers aboard the plane showed oxygen masks deployed inside the aircraft. The Boeing 737, which was carrying 166 passengers, landed safely. The aviation ministry said the cockpit crew had been taken off duty pending an investigation. Uh, Lalit Gupta, a senior official of Indian's Aviation Regulator, the Directorate General of Civil Aviation, told the Hindustan Times newspaper that the crew had forgotten to select a switch to maintain cabin pressure. Jet Airways said in a statement that Thursday morning's flight had turned back due to loss in cabin pressure and regretted the inconvenience caused to its passengers. The Boeing 737 aircraft with 166 guests and five crew landed normally in Mumbai. Uh, all guests were deplaned safely and taken to the terminal. First aid was administered to a few guests who complained of ear pain, bleeding nose, etc., the statement said. The airline said it was cooperating fully with the DGCA investigation. And passenger Darshak Hathi tweeted a video of the interior of the cabin as air pressure dropped and oxygen masks came down. This something that's not quite right about this story for, for the way it's reported i don't know whether pip and al can chime in here but i would imagine if you're taking off from mumbai it's quite warm and maybe the aircraft was reasonably well uh, well loaded with people and fuel so it's quite a hot temperature takeoff potentially so don't you 
or, or don't you often do a sort of a, um, a packs off takeoff for, for, the, for those sort of situations? And if you did, um, it says that uh, it, it, uh, it turned back shortly after takeoff. Well, it wouldn't have reached anywhere near. 10,000 feet at that point, I would presume. So that's the, that's the critical uh, altitude, I, I would have thought. But uh, obviously, I don't know. So anybody got any other thoughts on it? Well, I, I do. Go, yes, go ahead, you, you've, no, no, you, well, I was going to say, you've flown the 737, so you, you've probably got a, a better idea. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely right, Nev, um, in so much as that it would be fairly normal to turn the air conditioning packs off for takeoff. gives you uh, more performance, and uh, I'm desperately trying to think back, but typically it would be 14,000 feet that the masks would deploy rather than 10. So, but they say it turned back shortly after takeoff. It largely depends on what your definition of shortly. Um, so, you know, that's within 10 minutes. So that's, that's you know, shortly after takeoff. Um, so, yes, on the, um, on the 737, uh the, there is no indication that you've not turned the packs on after takeoff until it starts dinging at you because of cabin altitude um so a lot of aircraft say for example the airbus if you don't turn the packs back on um, as you go through 1500 feet it will come up with a a caution to tell you that the packs are off uh, which is in quite a timely fashion, whereas um, the, the Boeing strategy is that, um, y you know, that there is no caution. It just goes straight into the warning. So uh, now it may well have been that they forgot to put the packs back on. And as happened in the past, when the cabin high altitude, uh, it was more of a klaxon really goes off. Because don't forget, these are quite old aircraft in design. There's nothing subtle about <laughs> the warning systems. It's quite conceivable that the two pilots have gone, what's that funny noise? Right. Okay. <laughs> and, and that, you know, that, that has actually happened. And it, if I remember rightly, the, the warning noise is very similar to the uh, gear not down. Right. So there have been a few occasions where people have been trying to diagnose a gear problem and failing to notice that it's actually a, a cabin altitude issue. Right. So, um, so yeah, here, there you go. Here's my question for you, Al. Um, that being the case, if they manage to get to some reasonable altitude without turning the packs on, and then they realise their mistake and then turned them on, at what sort of rate do you think would the aircraft pressurise? Because I'm trying to work out why people had bleeding eyes and noses and, and all this kinds of stuff. Because unless, it, you know, just being in an unpressurized aircraft isn't going to make your ears uh, explode. But the rate of change might would. Yeah. And I, I can't see a seven, an unpressurized 737 or any aircraft really climbing at such a rate as to cause that sort of injury. So, no. so maybe I wonder, when they switch the packs on, does it pressurize at some ridiculous rate, rate do you yeah. think? It may well do because uh, you know it's a, it's an old design and uh, it's the, the air conditioning on the seven three seven. If you've ever travelled on it, is not subtle. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but I also wonder whether when the the pilots realised that this was a you know high cabin altitude warning, that they just didn't go into emergency descent mode and uh, you know having had the cabin climbing at uh, let's just say three thousand feet per minute. 
the cabin now started to descend at you know ten thousand feet per minute in an emergency descent. Yeah, well, you know, if they're doing an emergency descent from ten or twelve thousand feet. Well, I wonder whether they got questionable. Up to, yeah, I wonder no. whether they got up to twenty thousand feet before. Well, how they could they not notice at twenty thousand feet? But um, yeah, there's there's some obvious things. But the other comment I was going to make the only other comment. Um, you know, forgetting to turn the packs on. You know, it's a bit type specific. We uh, we'd have to do that on the Hawker. It's all automatic on the Phenom, uh, of course. On the Hawker, we would generally turn it on with the gear up. But sometimes you would forget, or maybe there was a problem; it wasn't working. But it, that would be immediately apparent, even if there's no ding dong or, or siren going off. To anyone who's used to flying, you, you'd immediately feel that pressure change in your it ear. It is, yeah, absolutely. Does I do- mean immediately? It's unmissable. Does well, that's quite interesting, actually, because we. Um, on the Airbus, uh, quite often do for noise abatement, delayed packs on takeoff, um, and I've never noticed it. I've well, never maybe, noticed. Maybe I'm it. hypersensitive. I mean, generally, I suppose on our biz jets, we we do climb at quite a rate. You know, four thousand feet a minute would not that be probably be the at difference. all. Yeah, but uh, even I you know what do you typically climb at initially in a just a bus. A bit- Two or three thousand feet a minute. Yeah, two two and a half would be. I would know, have thought reason. you'd notice that. Just out of interest, the 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 the, the they're talking about cabin pressurisation and things here. But is it is the 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 system exactly the same in the cockpit as well? Is it the same system essentially? So it's across the entire aircraft, or is there a different system? Oh, I see what you mean? Um, de- dealing well, with maybe the... that's type specific, but I, I would have thought that. Yeah, broadly I mean... so. Um, I can't remember enough about the seven three seven air conditioning system, but um, to go to the Airbus, which I do know, there are two air conditioning packs. Right. Uh, both uh, feed uh, the the aircraft cabin. Um, one has slightly more air coming out of it directed towards the cockpit than the cabin than the other. So it's not a straight, simple statement that pack one goes to the cockpit and right. pack two goes to the cabin. Uh, there is a slight bias, but yes, it's the same air. Okay. Um, right. and, and actually, Matt, you, you generally, at least the aircraft I've flown, it's generally regulated by controlling the air leaving the aircraft rather than the air coming in it's the outflow yeah. valves of right. the, usually at the back okay. of the aircraft and you're controlling yeah. how much air is leaving as opposed to coming in well, what, what i'm getting at here with my line of inquiry essentially is why didn't the pilots notice that the that it felt wrong if you saw i mean why didn't the pilots notice that the cabin pressure didn't feel right well that's that was my point I, mm. i'm my experience that would be immediately obvious yeah as your ears start to to go mad as you're, you're climbing up yeah i mean I, i'm maybe not a good example of this because actually I, on any flight that i've ever been i have terrible trouble getting my ears to what, where, to where did they take off from i forget what the story said was it a, a relatively high altitude uh, airport to begin with it was mumbai to jaipur yeah so mumbai. All right, I, I don't know how high mumbai yeah. is but... okay anyway we could go on uh for ages not very if i remember rightly not it's it's uh, it's not alpine. Let's put it that way. No. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
Some very interesting points there, gents, though. Um, we'll uh, move on, if yeah. we may. The next story is uh, one that's... Uh, well, in fact, all the stories this week have been sent to us by uh, our listeners. Uh, more about that later. Uh, the <laughs> Forbes.com uh, is the website. And the headline is JetBlue founder David Neil Neilman planning a new US airline with a curious strategy. So the world's most prolific and arguably successful founder of pleasantly unconventional airlines is returning home from Brazil to launch his third US and fourth North American based airline. Serial airline entrepreneur David Neilman uh, walked away, or depending on whose account of the story you believe was pushed out, of JetBlue um, the most famous and successful of the airlines he started back in 2008. But months later he launched a copycat carrier in Brazil called Azul uh, which blew in both Portuguese and Spanish, which today ranks as South America's third largest airline. Now, Neilman is seeking $100 million in investment money to launch yet another new carrier, according to media reports. It tentatively would be called Moxie, a name that, should it actually be used, would be a not-so-subtle poke at those who, over the last four decades, have dismissed or warred with... uh, with Neilman. Uh, given Neilman's success tra- successful track record and his own wealth, earned mostly from taking his startup carriers public, uh, finding launch capital for a new airline normally wouldn't be difficult, but Moxie's reported uh, strategic approach uh, would be considered risky if it weren't Neilman pushing the plan. That plan reportedly will focus on providing point-to-point service primarily to and from secondary airports. Air Finance Journal uh, was the first to report on Neilman's new plans, uh, although rumours of Nielsen's return to the US market have been circulating for more than a year. According to the Airline Weekly, among the potential airports to receive Moxie service are Hollywood Burbank Airport, Fort Worth's Meacham Airport and TF Green Airport in in Providence. yeah, uh, Rhode Island. Thank you, Rhode Island. Thank you. Yeah, I was trying to work out where that was. Uh, each is a each is an interesting target because it's hard to argue that limited service from such airports would be effective in competition against massive amounts of service offered at nearby airports. Hollywood Burbank's airport is a small in comparison with nearby Los Angeles International Airport, which serves more than eighty-four million passengers annually. Still, with more than four million passengers annually, it's hard to argue that Hollywood Burbank is under served. Green Airport in Providence is located about an hour's drive from both Boston Logan International Airport and Bradley Airport in Hartford, uh, Connecticut. Yet, with a population of just 180,000, it's hard to conclude that the uh, city is underserved when Green Airport serves just under 4 million passengers a year. And while Fort Worth, with a population of nearly 900,000, is the largest city in the nation without any commercial air service within its boundaries, it is part oh, it is part owner of Dallas Fort Worth Airport midway between those two cities and although Meacham Airport is only 6 miles north of city's downtown for most residents of the sprawling city DFW Airport. It is only a slightly longer drive and offers more than 900 departures a day to 176 US and 57 foreign destinations. As a result, multiple attempts to provide commercial service at Meacham Airport since DFW opened in 1974 have all met with quick failure. I won't sort of go into that really, but um, 
do we i don't know i mean surely uh com more competition is good right especially in the u.s i mean one of the things that i have learned from various chats with our with our u.s friends is that there isn't really that much of what i call like a low cost model they don't have like a ryanair if you like that that is making flights so very cheap in the u.s in comparison to to what we experience here in europe i mean we're, we're almost spoiled really aren't we and probably the exception is someone like you know <clears throat> uh, Southwest, I would imagine, mm. and one or two others. But also, I think Southwest um, is probably the EasyJet equivalent, and I think Spirit are the Ryanair equivalent yeah, in right. the US. Okay. And also that since deregulation, obviously that you know anybody can start up an airline uh, as long as they as meet long as the, got the money. Uh, criteria for all this yeah, stuff. So, uh, and the yeah. money presumably. Yeah, of course, yeah. <laughs> not yeah. not a cheap experience, but uh, well, uh, if anybody can pull it off, I, de I guess David Needleman Neilman would be. Uh, he certainly got a, pr a track record for doing so, hasn't he? So. Uh, Absolutely. Later on in the article, it says that he's already placed a non-binding order for 60 A220 jets from Airbus. Okay. Now, that's the new one we saw at Farnborough, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah. See? See? <laughs> no. Okay. Right. Yes. Just me chuffed about that then. <laughs> Moving on then. So, uh, who's going to take the next one, Nev? Uh, this is for Captain L, I think, this one, isn't it? Yes. Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, just loading this little baby up then. This comes from uh, agjc.com. And I have got no idea what that particular publication is. <laughs> uh, Ask Pip. He's the but, one that found it. Uh, <laughs> yeah. But uh, nonetheless, the, uh, the I'm headline... I'm reading this one. Yeah. <laughs> Actually. <laughs> Well, you continue yeah yeah well i i've just loaded it up and the the website did that sort of crashing thing where everything just shrinks down all the html Good. disappears yeah, it's done the same anyway, with my ipad as well yeah uh, delta That's pilot strange. accused of lying about mental health issues to keep flying uh this is uh written by leon stafford the atlanta journal constitution a delta airlines pilot from fayette county has been indicted on charges he misled government officials about his mental health so he could keep flying. Adam Asselson, aged 39 of Peachtree City, is accused of falsifying Federal Aviation Administration medical records required to obtain airman medical certificates, critical to determining a pilot's fitness to fly. The FAA alleges that Asselson who joined Delta in 2017, according to his Facebook page, nothing like quoting factual evidence then, <laughs> admitted, uh, uh, you know, I'm presuming that it's not the FAA who are using Facebook to no. determine his Delta No, 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 let's hope not. <laughs> anyway, admitted that he had, uh, sorry, uh, omitted that he had sought help from Department of Veteran Affairs for what the indictment describes as major depressive disorder. Instead, Asselson, who's been a pilot, who had been a pilot, excuse me, in the U.S. Air Force, is said to have told the agency he received the VA disability benefits for knee strain and tinnitus. Asselson's attorney could be couldn't sorry, Asselton's attorney could be immediately reached for comment. Mm. I suspect <laughs> that there's a. a uh, could not be immediately reached for comment. Uh, Delta said in a statement that Asselton is no longer actively flying for the carrier. Delta pilots are held in the highest standards of professionalism, honesty and integrity. 
spokeswoman Catherine Simmons said. Once made aware of the situation, we opened an internal investigation and are working cooperatively with the authorities. The indictment came as the FAA has begun to compare VA records with pilot information to avoid the possibility of having someone at the controls who has mental health issues. The downing of German Wings Flight 9525 in 2015 put a spotlight on mental health after the plane's co-pilot, who had been treated for suicidal tendencies and had been ruled unfit to work, but kept the diagnosis secret, intentionally crashed the planes. Sorry, cr- crashed a plane into a mountainside in the Alps. As you do. <laughs> uh, yes or as you try to avoid. (laughs) Asselson is one of four airline pilots from across the nation indicted in August in the U.S. District Court of San Francisco for making false statements to the FAA in their medical certificates paperwork. The four men who are receiving disability benefits from the VA for mental health issues are accused of neglecting to disclose information that would have disqualified them from operating aircraft. Asselston was arrested on August 28th and released on a 10,000 US dollar bond, according to records. The indictment did not name the disorder from which Asselston allegedly suffers. Hmm. He is set for his first appearance on October the 3rd in the US District Court in San Francisco. He faces a maximum sentence of five years in prison and a fine of 250,000 US dollars if convicted. Apologies for making a bit of a pig's ear of reading that. It was a combination of elements. Um, but, yeah, this is um, one of those sort of stories, really, where you might look at it in face value and say, that's terrible, that's despicable. How, mm. how could he not have the integrity to, to come clean about, you know, his, his past and whatever? But the situation with regards to pilot medicals is a, is a very difficult one, and it's a, it's a fine balancing act because it's quite conceivable that in his own mind, he didn't think that he had a problem that he felt that he needed to disclose. So it all really revolves around the medical agencies talking to each other, or in this particular case, not talking to each other. Mm. Yeah, it's... um, And also, I mean, you know, if this was a reasonable amount of time ago, I mean, it almost seems unfair to, you know, something that, I don't know... I guess I guess the German wings thing is it has made everybody understandably quite sort of nervous, twitchy, perhaps about sort of the mental health and all that kind of thing. But uh, yeah, I know. mean, pilots generally, um, rightly or wrongly, do sort of view med- you know their, their medical practitioners with a slight suspicion, um, you know, yeah. almost as the enemy. They're ready to take our licenses away yeah. from us, and actually, that's not you know that's quite far from the truth no one wants to take your license away and at least um in this part of the world the medical authorities will make every effort to to find a way to to keep you going or people will talk to each other and sort of you know, well you know maybe and, help and you it's get... just a shame that he felt that this particular uh, case was not something he could discuss with his army because it's not necessarily uh, a bar to flying or to, no. to holding a, a medical certificate mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting as a slight parallel. I uh, I'm about to uh, revalidate my medical in the next few weeks. Uh, for me, it's it's every year, 
And uh, as part of that, I have to go off to an optometrist, an optician, to have my eyesight checked. And very long story cut short, it's, it's a new optician. And so I'm trying to explain all the various requirements to, that the CAA require. And we're in the midst of the, the examination. And uh, he says to me, oh, we've got a bit of a problem. And my immediate thought was, no, I could do without any bits of problems because yeah. the way that the CAA will respond to any bit of a problem mm. is just going to be lengthy, laborious, and more hoop jumping. Yeah. <laughs> and he could just immediately see my reaction. And he went, no, 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 I apologize. He said, the, the thread on the screw of your, of your glasses um, is, is, isn't working properly. We're going to need to get a new <laughs> screw for your glasses. Wow, okay. But I did mm. say to him... You know, I thought, I thought you were going to say that you'd uh, gone into the dentist rather than the optician. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, it can genuinely be a nerve-wracking experience. Yeah, After, I bet. Uh, I've been with my, or I had been with my AME for the last, or oh, at least dozen years, and I knew him and um, I was comfortable with him. But he he retired last year, so I had to go and see a new AME this year, a few months ago. And honestly, it was horrendous—the most nerve-wracking experience I've ever had and it's totally irrational there's no need for that but you know it's, it's someone new and, and your, your license is so precious to you yeah you know it's everything if you, if you lose that it's, it's your mortgage it's your kids it's yeah absolutely it's everything the thing is that you know we all know and we've all you know uh come across people within industry and they go you've not seen bob for a while oh didn't you know bob's lost his medical no oh, wow. and you know we Every year, you know, you hear about people who, you know, lose their medical. And, you know, more so for me than, than Pip, you know, as you get older, you start to yeah, have more, more concerns about various aspects because, you know, you start to have to wear glasses. And then after a little while, well, now you need reading glasses as well. And this is just one, you know, facet of the medical, your eyesight. And there's all sorts of other bits, um, you know, that uh, are under scrutiny. And, of course, as you get older, they become more under scrutiny. So, um, you know, I'm over 45, so you have to have a hearing test every couple of years. And I think, right, okay, well, you know, I know I can't hear as well as I used to, but, you know, am I now borderline? Is there going to be a, an issue or a repercussion? Um, so it is quite nerve-wracking, even, mm. even with someone that, you, you know, you've had a professional relationship for quite a long period of time, uh, because you're you're – your livelihood is in their hands. Yeah, literally, literally in their hands. I mean, it's, uh, oh, I, I don't know. I, I, it's, I, 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 I'm lucky at the moment because I'm not at that point. I think 45, I think it is in, in the coach world or bus driving world where you have to start, you know, for your D light, your D what D license. Uh, I think 45 is when you have to start having a, a medical. And I ain't going to lie, especially as I'm a, uh, shall I say, a well-insulated gentleman. Uh, I'm rather nervous about uh, when I suddenly have to go for my first medical. Um, you wait till you get to 55, mate. In our county, <laughs> you uh, have an appointment with a camera. A, a camera? <laughs> <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> no, and we're not talking snappy snaps either. No, no. Yeah. <laughs> a, a quick question for Alan. <laughs> because... The snaps are the gloves on the opposite hand, <laughs> aren't they? <laughs> oh, well. Go ahead, Pip. Sorry, I digress. Uh, since all this German wing stuff, uh, as you know, the, um, there's been a requirement for AMEs to assess our, our mental health. How is, what approach has your AME taken, if any? Um, 
My AME has taken quite a, a pragmatic uh, approach to it. You know, firstly, he will, you know, openly admit that he has a very short period of time to try to make some sort of assessment. You're usually in there for an hour, hour and a half. So, uh, what? Secondly, an hour and a half. Yeah, well, by the time you have a chat and, you know. Good Lord, what sort of tests and probes have you been requesting? Oh, well, I've been an hour than you, so, you know. minutes. Well, by the time you swap videos and that's... Yeah, of course, that. absolutely. Well, by the time you've had your ECG, by the time you've had your hearing test done and your eyesight test done, it takes a while. Um, wow. But anyway, the other thing he says that, um, you know, he has a short period of time to, to make assessment... He's not a trained psychiatrist. You know, his field right. isn't mental health. And, you know, he will also say to you that just like people who have alcohol problems, people with mental health problems are very good at hiding them. Yeah, yeah, by definition, yeah. My, my uh, or my past AME um, took the direct approach. He uh, said, so, uh, Pip, do you feel like killing yourself? No wow. Doctor. Right, let's tick that one off. <laughs> okay. Right. I mean, it's an unusual approach. I mean, yeah, it's effective. Well, it's effective. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. Right. And, and how did you answer that one, just out of interest? Uh, <laughs> uh, usually, no, if you want to keep your license. <laughs> okay. Yeah. No, yeah. Good. Re yes. Yeah. Good answer. Yeah. Good. Uh, wow. Okay. Right. Uh, well, I'm not really sure where we got to. What's. Uh, I think well, that's. The, it's the last uh, story, and I think Pip's going to read this one. Ah, uh, yes. Okay. So, cool. I have yes. got it loaded up and ready to go. This is from theage.com.au. Tiger Air Australia grounded plane over botched maintenance work. Ooh. Ooh. Budget airline Tiger Air Australia grounded one of its jets for three weeks last month after it flew back to Australia for maintenance work in the Philippines with serious undetected faults. Oh. Uh, the incident has prompted parent company Virgin Australia to end all maintenance work at the facility owned by Singapore Airlines, which owns a 20% uh, stake of Virgin, and has raised questions about Tiger Airs and the air safety regulators' oversight of offshore maintenance work. How long is this story? So I'm scrolling down. It's a very long story, so let's just get the <laughs> basics here. Um... Sorry, I scrolled down too far. Tiger Air flew one of its three Boeing 737s to Clark International Airport near the Filipino city of Angels on July 17th to undergo heavy maintenance work. The jet returned to Melbourne with only crew on board two weeks later on July 31st, and Tiger Air engineers discovered that a modification to the plane's cargo-based smoke evacuation system had been installed incorrectly. The work was akin to the skills of a home handyman, according to Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers Association Federal Secretary Steve Pavinas, with uh, unsecured components and wires connected to the wrong terminals. Oh, wow. That's wow. quite serious. Yeah, the fault required extensive repair work, followed by testing, which meant the jet was sitting idle in Melbourne for three weeks and forced the airline, which only has 15 planes, to cancel some services. Uh, let me read this one last sentence. Another fault was discovered before the plane's first service flight on August 22nd when crew found a flight attendant's seat belt was not properly bolted to the seat. Oh. Interesting. Uh, all right, let me hang one more sentence. What concerns us most is other latent defects hidden now, but waiting to resurface at 30,000 feet, someone said. They didn't know about the seat belts. What else don't they know? 
Yeah, I mean, it does sound like um, the the maintenance has been um, slapdash, shall we say? Uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, well, what what were we saying earlier about cutting costs by outsourcing to yeah dodgy, you know, dodgy uh, companies? Absolutely. Although um, the the statement from uh, uh, this guy Steve. I mean, of course, he does have a vested interest because um, he is the secretary of the Australian Licensed Aircraft Engineers uh-huh, Association, yes. okay, which yeah. would be the Australian Engineers Union, right. and uh, therefore, you know, he does have a, uh, an angle on this story. Okay, yes, yeah, a vested interest, one might yes. also say. Yeah, okay. I mean, I, I, I understand why people are desperate to sort of save money and stuff, but, I mean, does it really... <laughs> Does it not hurt to sort of, you know, I don't know, uh, I guess I'm not, sort of, I, I'm not the one writing out the checks, I suppose, but does it hurt not to sort of do it at home sometimes? Rather well, there's than a couple out- of factors here, um, and it's not just cost sometimes. Um, the, these checks have to be done at a certain number of cycles, mm. uh, as in takeoff and landing cycles, uh, actually just counted as landings, mm. and a certain number of hours uh, on the airframe. And uh, sometimes um, you have to take the aeroplane halfway around the world because that's the only place that has the availability Booty. to do the check. To do it when when you, uh, yeah, of course. Yeah, yeah. It, you know, in, in the same way as in the UK when, you know, have to MOT your car yeah. and, you know, your, your place that you normally go to, they say, well, I, I'm very sorry, but we're fully booked. Yeah. And you yeah. go, okay, right, well, I'll have to go somewhere else then. And then you phone around and phone around and, oh, everyone's fully booked. So, okay, well, then I've got to take it to Norwich. Yeah. <laughs> at Which, the other side of the world. Yeah, from your part, yeah, from your part of the world, certainly, absolutely. Uh, not so bad uh, for us here in, in, <laughs> in Bungie, but anyway, there we are. Yes. Um, but so, I mean, I, I know that um, uh, in Monaco Airlines, we took one of our 330s for a major check and i'm trying to remember where it went uh it went to malaysia for its major check i didn't even know Uh, they could fly that far (laughs) oh yeah yeah and uh uh the uh the maintenance that was done down in malaysia uh was done to actually a very high standard but um the reason that it went to malaysia bearing in mind that monarch airlines had its own in-house engineering department was that obviously doing outside work is very financial financially lucrative for a maintenance organization so they were so busy doing continentals maintenance that they couldn't do our 330 right so so um, and even when you factor into the cost of positioning it out to kuala lumpur um you know it actually was still marginally cheaper but the reason it went to malaysia was because that was the 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 cheapest place that could do it in the time frame yeah had availability when you need when when you could afford for it to be out of service essentially Uh, because i think if i remember rightly it was down there for three weeks so it's quite a major check yeah Uh, i mean that's three weeks of 24 hour working yeah Uh, yeah, a bit, a bit busy time. So it's uh, well, so not necessarily cost cutting, more more just looking for availability when the vehicle is is needing to have its work done. Essentially, yeah, I mean, absolutely. As is often the case, there's more than one facet to these stories. Mm. Well, possibly, but uh, I don't think many. Well, not all major airlines have their own in-house uh, maintenance anymore. Ooh, ooh. 
I, controversial. From, from what I gather, and you know, listen to the APG, for yeah. instance, I, I hear they often send their aircraft to um, sort of other places, other places in South places, America right. or wherever to have their, their so, big yes. maintenance. I mean, they have their line maintenance, obviously, yeah. for, the, for the day-to-day things. I mean, even uh, at Safe Jets, we used to have our own uh, in-house maintenance, which was based at uh, Northolt in London, but um, uh, that went the way of the dodo, unfortunately, in a, a cost-cutting exercise. And now all our maintenance is is uh, a third party. Wow. Okay. But well, I suppose I suppose as long as they're doing it to to the high standard, then I guess that there isn't an issue. There, as obviously the issue with this story yes. is that it it, it very much. Uh, it very much wasn't the case, <laughs> if you see what I mean. It would suggest Well, perhaps. indeed, and, and another element to this, of course, is that aircraft are no different in some respects to, to you know, your own car. Now, you can have your, you know, defects on your car uh, rectified to various levels. There's the one that is required for it to be safe and to fulfil the regulatory requirements in the UK, the MOT, or you could have it, you know, uh, the defects rectified to as close as possible to how it came out of the factory. Now, of course, there'll be a huge difference yeah. in cost. Indeed, this this is true. I always have my car MOT'd in the Philippines. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, the best place to have your car MOT'd is in the Isle of Man, isn't it? Right, OK. Because the, uh... they don't have an MOT in the Isle of Man. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh. Yeah. Uh, no. uh, okay. okay. But presumably, well, as soon as you bring it back to the UK, it has to be MOT'd. Uh, I don't know. Anyway, uh, well, if you register your car in the Isle of Man, then you'll never have to have an MOT again. That's Good true. point. Good point. Yeah. I hadn't thought of that. Well, I think we should uh, uh, move on from this now, Nev. I think it's time to play our, one of our first segments for this week. Yes, we've got a couple of segments from uh, that we recorded at Farnborough, um, which seems a long time ago. It now, does, something, yeah. doesn't it? But uh, I was just a boy. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, his hair but, was uh, a different. There's a couple of good it? ones here, and uh, the first one we're going to play is uh, one of Carlos uh, interviewing. Uh, Captain Al, and we dragged him kicking and screaming into the Boeing. Oh dear, Farnborough. So, uh, and I'm re- still uh, receiving the psychological counselling for it. I'm sure you are. But let's uh, let's go over to Carlos and uh, see what he's got to say. Okay, so I'm here with Captain Al. We're in the uh, Boeing Centre here, and uh, Captain Al, you're you're at home. Yes, uh, money has changed hands for me to come in here. <laughs> Um, I'm just checking that the serial numbers aren't the same on the banknotes that you've given me. <laughs> I tell you, it cost a fortune to get Al to actually walk into this building, but he's, he's really at home here. He's remarked on how good the models are, especially the, uh, the, the Max. Yes, yes, and, and one of the, uh, the Boeing representatives have just told us that they had a little accident here, so I, I don't know if someone got a bit excited, but it certainly wasn't me. <laughs> so, Al, you've been here, you've been to the show a few times now um, in the last few days, haven't you? Yes. Have a look. How's it compared to previous years? It's, uh, it's interesting to see the advancements of technology in the Airbus facility. Um, they're definitely uh, striding ahead, I think. When you all see the air show later, um, you may get to see the A350-1000, which is a beautiful aeroplane, and did a stunning display on Thursday. And uh, next to go was the, uh, the 787, and if you were to zoom in on the flight deck, you could see the two test pilots going, how can we beat that? How can we beat that? <laughs> we just might as well not bother. So they put it in the air, and did a 
a few turns and then came back and went, yeah, yeah, it would be. And then the, the 7.3 Max did something. It got airborne, which is pretty good. So that was two, two Boeings that got airborne. There we go. So where we are now in this centre, you've got to admit, this is pretty well done by Boeing. You know, I haven't seen the Airbus. Well, I was going to say you've not. But you know, they, they have got the lighting in here is 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 fantastic. Well, a bit of star cloth and a few yeah. spots. I mean, you know. Yeah. You I, know, I could have black a disco box discos here. could do a better yeah. job, couldn't they? <laughs> Shameless promotion. Yeah, I think. Uh, Available for weddings, christenings, bar mitzvahs. <laughs> so anyway, moving on, Al. Um, you obviously saw the the three fifty dash one thousand. Yes. And uh, what what would you say? would be the chances of possibly you flying that in the future? If I wanted to, I could go and fly it very, very soon. Um, there's opportunities around the world to go and fly the 350. Um, but just for the moment, I'm quite happy with the, the work-life balance that I have. Um, and the bottom line is, in the global market at the moment, short-haul pilots are paid more than long-haul pilots. So, uh, for me, um, and some of the, the viewers and listeners will know, know my recent past with an airline that failed. So money in the bank is key at the moment. So uh, with the exception of certain manufacturers, I'm quite happy to fly anything. I'll just go for the bucks. Now on the show, we always uh, talk about how much you and Captain Nick are not impressed with the Boeing product, right? But honestly, there must be some part of, uh, of Boeing that you like. No, Any not part. really. I mean, I have travelled on the 787. Um, I was bitterly disappointed that I didn't get off a nine-hour flight and feel super and fantastic. <laughs> that might have been because the electronic window blinds failed in middle of the flight and we were advised by a fairly loud PA announcement telling us that the blinds had failed. It was a bit pointless, really, because it was dark outside, so no one really cared and everyone was woken from their sleep um, no not really um, I, I'm not not feeling the love so offered if you were offered a, a, a multi-figure job flying for an airline that just had a Boeing fleet you wouldn't you wouldn't jump at the chance I'm not stupid Nev of course I'd take the cash <laughs> and on that note we're gonna wrap up things here then and move on to uh, well well to could go to the Airbus uh, let's do that so, yeah let's do that Let's do that, Carlos. Let's do that. Uh, did they go to the Airbus thing, Nev? That's the question. Well, we, we, we weren't allowed in, <laughs> oh, sadly. No. <laughs> uh, so, which was a shame because it, it was pretty impressive, actually. I think um, uh, it was quite a... Well, there was a lot of security, wasn't there, on the, yes, uh, there was, yeah. on the uh, entrance to it. Did you get into the Airbus um, booth before we got there, Al, at all, on the day before? Uh, yes, I had. I'd uh, sweet-talked myself in there and... Uh, I must say that the quality of the champagne was very good. Um, uh, right. The, the canapes, they, they were a little bit soggy, but right. um, yeah. Uh, and uh, they, they had uh, some nice exhibits to have a look at. And I mean, I think it's probably fair to say that uh, uh, they had the star of the show with the uh, the A380. Yeah, um, they did. Yeah. Up there. yeah, the high fly. Uh, yeah, I yeah. think we all would agree, those of us who who were lucky to go on it for a second-hand aircraft. It uh, looked pretty swanky, didn't it? Well, so yeah, did, excellent. Yeah. We got that nice uh, private tour of it as well, didn't we, which was, uh, which was yeah. great. Really enjoyed that. Yeah. So, I mean, even a second-hand aeroplane from Airbus completely <laughs> wiped out the Boeing exhibits. 
Right. Okay. Good. Um, I'm so glad that we, you know, it's, it obviously balance is key with our program, and I'm <laughs> delighted that we were able to offer such balance uh okay uh uh well you've done quite well uh al because we are overrunning but i've decided we're gonna we're gonna pl- oh dear look at him with his badge uh i've decided we're gonna plod on anyway al and it's time to do some military so if you're all ready boys and girls here we go cacophony of sound that was. <laughs> it's all right. I faded about most of it. We only caught the end of it. I'm afraid. Oh, <laughs> you! Just I knew what was going We can do it again. No, we can't. It's fine. <laughs> Absolutely. I'm almost slightly terrified. Uh, right, uh, Nev. I think you've got the first one. <laughs> yeah, this is on the Hearts dot uh, com website, and um, uh, it says that uh, Putin says Israel didn't down Russian aircraft. Uh, Netanyahu offers condolences. Uh, earlier, Russia. But blamed downed military aircraft on Israel's deliberate pro- uh, provocations striking Syria. Uh, and uh, France denies involvement and US plane uh, shot down by Syrian air defense systems. Uh, so Russian President Vladimir Putin, Putin said on Tuesday that Israel was not responsible for the downing of a Russian military aircraft to, during a strike on Syria on Monday night. It looks like a chain of tragic circumstances because the Israeli plane didn't shoot uh, down our jet he said and putin's comments were a shift in tone after russia accused israel earlier of hostile provocation in striking the syrian port city of latakia uh, which led to the downing of a russian military plane with 15 servicemen on board uh, when asked about comparisons to Turkey's downing of a Russian aircraft in 2015, Putin said, this is a different situation. The Turkish fighter jet knowingly downed our plane. The Russian president noted that the defence ministry's statement vowing a retaliatory response was fully coordinated with him. The retaliatory measures will be directed above all to boosting the security of military men and installations in Syria, he said. These will be measures everyone will see. And uh, President, uh, sorry, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu spoke on the phone with Putin and expressed his condolences, but added that the responsibility for the downing of the Russian planes uh, rests with Syria. He also reiterated that Israel is determined to prevent Iran from gaining a military foothold in Syria and thwart Tehran's attempt to aid Hezbollah with lethal weapons against Israel. Always a difficult thing when there's uh, political and military stuff going on and there's going to be there's always blame being chucked about on, on both sides with these sorts of things. Because, uh, and part of me, this is again, this is a slightly controversial thing to say uh, on, on, a, on a UK based media thing, but there is a a slim possibility, of course, because he's not quite well renowned for, um, shall we say, telling the truth. Um, <laughs> yes, I, I, mean, yeah, I didn't say that. I just want 
viewing public to to realise I didn't say that. <laughs> if I were okay. you, uh, Matt, I would be very careful about uh, touching your front door or right. <laughs> anything okay. like that. Yes, yeah, no, good point. Yes, I don't have any plans to to go to Salisbury anytime yeah. soon. But <laughs> there we are. Oh well, well never you're mind. quite safe because, as I understand it, they travel by train to Salisbury. So, oh, okay, you know, <laughs> no chance you, where we are. All right. <laughs> Yeah, no chance. I never had a very pleasant experience going back to London, didn't you, from uh, our local... Um... <laughs> oh, from uh, Dis. Yes, yeah. Dis train station. What a treat. Gosh. Yes. That's, uh, that's Did they, is it still a slam door train on that? It that was. Line? It was, actually, actually yes. yes. Yeah, it is, it actually. Was. Nothing's changed since a few years back then. No, no pretty much <laughs> not. No, no, indeed. Anyway, we'll move on to the next story. As, as I say, we are running out of time a bit, but uh, it is uh, the inews.co.uk. Uh, it's the essential briefing, and the headline is RAF creates first joint squadron with another nation since the Second World War. In the dark days of 1940, a grateful British government signed a deal with Poland's exiled armed forces to form two new RAF squadrons staffed with battle-hardened Polish pilots and commanded by British officers. The result was a spectacular success. 303 Squadron, one of the two Polish units, scored the highest number of enemy kills of any flying hurricane fighters during the Battle of Britain. Some 78 years later, another appreciative British government this week confirmed it is forming the first joint squadron with another nation since the Second World War. But while the events of 1940 were dictated by the gravest national emergency, the formation of Number 12 Squadron to be based at uh, Coningsby uh, in Lincolnshire is born from a different set of pressures, namely the need for Britain to maintain its lucrative export of state-of-the-art fighter jets. Uh, the new squadron will be staffed by pilots and ground crew from both uh, Qatar and Britain. Wow, that's an unusual... Th th wow. OK, to provide training as part of a £5 billion deal finally put into action this week to sell the tiny but fabulously wealthy Gulf State 24 Typhoon and 9 Hawk jets produced by British defence giant BAE Systems and its partners. The sale is potent evidence of both Britain's continuing and controversial success in defence exports. It is also proof of just how far ministers are happy to go to reinforce sales by formally pairing with them with the expertise and facilities of the armed forces. One official with knowledge of the deal told the I newspaper that there is a lot of symbolism in forming the new Qatar Strock Squadron. Training foreign pilots has always been a necessity as part of our selling aircraft to allies abroad, but forming a joint RAF squadron specifically for the task with all the pomp and ceremony is an attractive tool to enable to deploy to a Gulf ally. Uh, the new squadron, which will begin work next year and redeploy to Qatar once the, the first typhoons are due for delivery in 2022, is the most visible manifestation of Britain's growing exertions to export weaponry and defence equipment around the globe as it gears up for, and here is that word again, brace yourselves everyone, Brexit. Dun, uh, a, green, <laughs> a green paper uh, laying out the government's industrial strategy for a post-Brexit Britain in released last year set an expansion of arms sales as a key target. The Ministry of Defence was singled out to work with manufacturers to enhance support for exports. This programme, personally led by Trade Secretary Liam Fox, a former Defence Secretary, appears to be hearing fruit 
uh, so it appears to be bearing fruit, sorry, not hearing fruit at all, as manufacturers and ministers fan out across the globe in search of new or expanded business in the weapons games. Licenses granted last year to previously small-scale partners include exports worth £583 million to Turkey, a 322% increase on 2016, a £35 million uh, uh, one to Thailand, that's a 720% increase and a 9.9 million uh, deal to Botswana as you do, which is a 4,364% increase. Sales to Bangladesh rose from £104,000 to £38.5 million, an increase of nearly 37,000%. Well, I think it's safe to say that uh, military spending, uh, or selling I should say, is going rather well for Brexit. <laughs> It's a bit like those uh, AP, um, APR rates, isn't it, you hear on yeah. the television? <laughs> yeah, yeah. 1,794%. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. But there we are. It, it's uh, an interesting one. Uh, is that the answer to our Brexit woes, I suppose? <laughs> Yeah. selling arms to yeah to, to other nations yeah. around the world yeah why not <laughs> yeah why not what could possibly go wrong eh pip yeah nothing ever has gone wrong by doing that <laughs> no indeed indeed sound advice for everyone there uh right uh who i think it's al next uh with the next story please oh i thought i was going to be exempt hang on is this the uh okay this comes from uh popular mechanics so i believe we're thanking micah for contributing yep, this one absolutely oh. So as China's world influence expands, so is its military. An increasingly capable navy, large investments in weapons tech, and its first overseas military base speak to President Xi Jinping's goal to make China a global superpower. But to match that ambition, the People's Liberation Army has turned to other countries for inspiration when it comes to outfitting its armed forces. Although buying or stealing foreign military technology could be seen as a strategic weakness, China skips expensive and time-consuming R&D. Has someone fallen over? I, th I think Pip's fallen, fallen, fallen over. Yeah, yeah, Sorry, yeah, yeah. I'll mute myself while I recover. <laughs> Happy days, everyone. Are you okay? Are you injured? <laughs> yes. Are you all right, Pip? Everyone is concerned. <laughs> I'm fine. Don't worry about me. Save yourselves. <laughs> okay, fair enough. Do you know, I knew that was going to bloody well happen when I set this all up. I precariously balanced my laptop on the end of a, a shelf here, a bookshelf. Anyway, do carry on. Yeah. I'll be back. Right, okay. Uh, one word, Ikea. Right. Second word, desk. <laughs> right, indeed. So, Sound uh, advice. Yes, uh, <laughs> expensive and time-consuming R&D. And nowhere is fast and loose... And nowhere is fast and loose weapons adoption and its inherent shortcomings more apparent than in China's Air Force. Like the US, China deploys aircraft with a broad range of capabilities, but unlike most of the US, most of China's planes are based on plans purchased or stolen from its adversaries. Here are seven of them. Uh, this is a little bit pictorial, so um, are you ready, Matt? Uh, no, but yes, I will be. <laughs> you carry on. So we've got the Chengdu J-10. And the US F-16. Yes, there's some similarities there. Uh, in the 1980s, the US partnered with Israel to develop a new combat aircraft based on the General Dynamics F-16. But its cost rose. The US pulled out of the deal. 
leaving Israel's Lavi fighter unfinished. Years later, American officials discovered that Israel sold the Lavi development plans to China, granting them unprecedented access to technologies first developed for the F-16. The J-10 shared more than a striking visual resemblance with the F-16. The technology sourced through Israel allowed China to advance significantly over the 1960s-era fighters they were fielding at the time. This would be not this. Excuse me. This would not be the last Chinese fighter to incorporate elements of the F-16. I'll get get these teeth to work properly at some point. <laughs> but it's the most direct. An updated version of the J-10 entered into service last year with an advanced fire control radar array, an increased use of composite materials to reduce weight, and a number of domestically developed updates that aim to keep the J-10 capable for decades to come. Then we have the next one. Are you ready, Matt? I am, yes. Okay. This is the Xinyang J-11-16 and the Russian Sukhoi S-27. Well, one's grey and the other one's blue, so quite clearly they're not at all the same. (laughs) Right. As the Soviet Union neared collapse in 1989, China seized the opportunity to secure the production line for the Sukhoi S-27. An air superiority fighter developed to counter American jets like the T-14 Tomcat. The Soviets, keen to sell China a new MiG design instead, were left with little choice in the face of looming economic ruin. China quickly set about producing their own Su-27s and then improving upon the design to develop what would become the J-11. Unlike other fighters China employed at the time, the Su-27 brought advanced avionics systems and fly-by-wire technology that China was also able to incorporate into later platforms. In 2000, Russia sold China a number of advancements they'd made to their own Su-27 platform, and China's subsequent effort to incorporate them alongside domestically developed technologies has since resulted in the J-16, a modified and updated Su-27. Moving on, we've now got the Shenyang J-15 and the Russian Sukhoi Su-33. How many more of these? Oh, there's some <laughs> boxer shorts there. Great. Okay. Okay. So we'll do, we'll uh, do one more of these after what this. What the, yeah. the crux of this is is that the Chinese are very good at copying things. Yes. Uh, yes. And I think this it's... actually is no great surprise to most people in the commercial world, yeah. uh, because the Chinese are experts at copying and improving. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, it comes as no great surprise that. They're doing this with uh, military technology because, after all, you can go and buy in China a Range Rover copy. You can buy a Rolex (laughs) copy. So why on earth can't you buy, you know, an F-35 copy? Um, They can do it. It's just a a skill that the Chinese have developed in copying things. And, you know, some might say that, um, you know, copying is the best form of flattery. Well, uh, yeah, the, the the scariest thing about all this is quite often, though, as you, as you were saying, uh, quite often the, the copies end up being better than the originals. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I, mean, I remember many years ago going to a street market in Thailand and uh, buying a uh, Rolex copy, and quite clearly it was a copy. 
and there was no uh, pretending that it was anything other than a copy. Uh, and I'm not going to suggest for one minute no. um, that it was worth much more than the five US dollars I paid for it. But it kept <laughs> bloody good time, yeah, which for watches go is one of the primary design specifications. Yes. Yeah, no, I'll give you that. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, yeah, it was just scuffed and scratched within 15 seconds, but <laughs> it's, it's, it actually lasted about three or four years. That wow. thing did, and uh, um, you know, I'm. I'm Sure that the gold plating was probably, you know, the, the cause for the massive rash that developed on my arm. But you know, that's... Where, where did you buy it from again? Uh... Thailand. Right. Okay. Of course, that is that... the only rash I came back with before you asked. Okay. <laughs> Fair yeah, enough. it cleared up before he left. Yeah. Yes, it did. <clears throat> Absolutely. Less questions when he got home. Good. Uh, Pip, have you stabilised your equipment? Are you uh, are you all set Ooh. for the final story? Uh, I don't quite know how it's to answer asking uh, about Pip's yeah. equipment. <laughs> well, it, it's, it's, it's as stable as it's ever going to be, Matt. <laughs> right, fair enough. I'm sorry I asked. Uh, the... yes. <laughs> right, the next story, I believe, is uh, courtesy of Amundo. And this is from the cap.news, the cap.news, which seems very appropriate since this is the millinery segment. Yeah, the, the what? <laughs> the millinery? <laughs> right. I, I was expecting a bigger reaction to that gag. Right, okay, sorry. I've been laughing at that for the last few minutes <laughs> while I was reading this story. I thought that was hilarious. Right, good. Cap.news, the, the millinery segment. Oh, forget, <laughs> it. forget it. <laughs> I can hear <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to check the chat room. I'm sure someone. Oh, it's because. That. Hang on. Is this because you come from Luton? <laughs> what? So, uh, isn't Luton famous for hats, or is that somewhere else? Okay, we should have stepped into a slightly weird area, gentlemen. Uh, <laughs> let's keep on. <clears throat> right, right. Let's start okay. all that again. Yeah, nothing. From the cap. Nothing from nothing from the chat room, I'm why, afraid. I, I'm trying to think. Isn't that why Luton Town Football Club are known as the Hatters? Oh, I don't know. Oh, that's very, it's very good. Yeah. Uh, Lee, Lee saying yes next to me. <laughs> See, not not just a pretty face. I'm you know educated as well. Well done. Well, you do fly an Airbus. What can I say? Mm. They uh, do say if you have to explain it, then it's not funny. But in this case, I think it genuinely <laughs> was funny, and it's just you're all too thick to understand. Right. Okay. All right. Okay. Uh, well, uh, uh, Barbara is Coming laughing. Coming from the person who doesn't have a desk for his laptop. <laughs> right, yes. Okay. Well, uh, yeah. uh, Richard King has found it amusing, so you're not completely on your own. Barbara Parrish has found it funny. Uh, Dr. Steph has just gone, eh? No, well, I wouldn't expect Steph to get it. Show title, Pip's erection. Moving on, moving on. Abort. Right, Okay. Right, come on, let's get on with this. Let's be See, that was funny. <laughs> <laughs> yes, indeed. <clears throat> it, it's Plain Talk in UK, it's not Radio 4. <laughs> Yeah. Yes, all right. Fair enough. It, it was quite a high-class gag, <laughs> right? I'll give you that. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, it was wasted on us, really, isn't it? Yes. Yeah. But, uh... <laughs> all right, so this is... Right, shut it. Cap.news, which has nothing to do with hats. Crap.news. Baseball caps, top hats, or millinery of any sort. This is, in fact, the Civil Air Patrol. Right, okay. Um, which is part Very of the serious. US Air Force Auxiliary. And as I say, this comes courtesy of, uh, of Armando in the chat room. Yeah. And the headline is specially He's an awfully fine fellow. <laughs> he is a jolly fine fellow indeed. Um, especially equipped. Shut up, will you? <laughs> <laughs> 
Specially equipped cap planes conducting Florence Maybe damage in the next version of the Hangouts, they'll have the option to be able to mute other people. That's right. Yes, you never know. <laughs> anyway, get on with it, Pip. <laughs> yes, come on. Stop that, silly. Right, Civil Air Patrol is in full launch mode this week in the Carolinas with air crews in both states conducting aerial imagery flights with specially equipped planes in support of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. CAP, acting as the US Air Force Auxiliary, is supporting Air Force's Northern uh, during defense support of civil authorities' operations following the landfall of Hurricane Florence on the East Coast. There we go. I told you this was topical. Um, AFNORTHS, which is the, as I said, the Air Force Northern, uh, AFNORTHS' primary role is to support U.S. Northern Command's efforts to provide assistance to FEMA's relief efforts. And as uh, 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 a couple of pictures here, Matt, oh. stick them up. Oh, sorry, right. <laughs> as yes. part of that mission, CAP has launched a surrogate predator plane or surrogate remote piloted aircraft that can record video for review upon landing. The plane is flying sorties in South Carolina, um, com complementing the more traditional Garmin Verb or Nikon handheld camera imagery collecting uh, sorties that are also being flown. Uh, during this mission, our primary purpose is to support FEMA or FEMA and its mission tasking, said Lieutenant Colonel, sorry, Lieutenant Colonel for you Americans. <laughs> Lieutenant Colonel Steve Wood, Deputy Commander of CAP's Green Flag East Flight, which is based in Alexandria, Louisiana. And there's some nice uh, uh, pictures taken from this this drone, looking at, I guess, it's some uh, burst uh, riverbanks. And I've just lost the story. It's just come up with a stupid advert. <laughs> Uh, okay. Um, you wouldn't have this problem if you had a desk. Would you? Oh, is Josh still there? Josh, give him another slap. <laughs> Might be bedtime for Josh, I suspect. Yeah. But uh, okay. Well, look, this is a this is a long story, but there's some pretty pictures there with um, some equipment being strapped to. Uh, looks like a Cessna 172. Um, and there you go. They they're using aeroplanes and uh, special equipment to go off and, and monitor the goings on of storm florence or hurricane florence i should yeah, say absolutely um, so that all looks rather fun so the, the civil air patrol as i understand it we don't really have an equivalent here uh, at all in fact um so this is a, a group of pilots volunteers who are using their own aircraft civil aircraft like this cessna uh, here and others to um provide support functions for the for the u.s military and uh, this is a a very apt uh, use using their stuff to to aid in in um, so just disaster to, relief and that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, just helping to get, sort of collect data, I suppose, as well in re yeah, in regard yeah. to the. Now, I used to do when I, back in my old life as a survey pilot, we used to have a, a standing uh, contract where we'd be on on call. I think it's like a two hour call out or something for the for the environment agency, because um, obviously we get a, a lot of flooding over here. So uh, in the, the rainy seasons, we'd we'd often go off and. Um, go out and start taking pictures and, and all sorts of, of stuff of, of flooded areas. And that was quite fascinating work, actually. You could, uh, you know, over the course of the day, see these regions starting off from being non-flooded to the water coming in and then totally covered in water. Uh, quite what they did with the with the images we took, I don't know, but it all went back to the whoever, the Environment Agency, yeah. and they were able to do whatever they do with it. 
I imagine they would be able to, to look at the, the imagery that you took and to see what flood defences they could build to pre prevent sort of the collateral damage. Yeah, that's it. I, I don't think it was much of sort of immediate relief. It was more for, for future planning and yeah. seeing how and where places places flood and what they could do about it in the future. But yeah. it was fascinating work when I did it. Let's see. Yeah, I bet. I bet it's uh, well, and and as you say, the the data is so useful, isn't it? At the end of the day, this is how it sort of, you know, hopefully they can they can you know use it to maybe sort of plan where floods might appear perhaps um you know how, how, the, how the route might change or or you know the impact and the area of of certain water levels and things but uh yeah it's um yeah good uh, very important work yeah so amando thanks for the story i'm sorry al ruined it for us all <laughs> now now <clears throat> i take my hat off to you sir <laughs> ah. Indeed, good. Uh, right, uh, Nev. Uh, that's that concludes the military section. Uh, I, it does. I, I can't believe we I got think, to the end. I of think it. we're grateful for that. Too, yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And uh, <clears throat> we've got one more piece to to play out, and also some feedback, which I'm looking forward to playing. So uh, yes, yes, yes. So we're going back out to back to Farnborough again uh, from uh, earlier this year uh, in the outside. Now I'm pleased to say because it was nice and sunny there. <gasps> the weather was very good whilst we were there, yeah. and uh, we did some interviews in front of that A380 high fly aircraft, which was great. And uh, Carlos bumped into Captain Jeff, and uh, here is the interview. So we have got ultimate podcast royalty with us here in the face of Captain Jeff. Welcome, Jeff. How are you? I'm very fine, thank you. How are you? Oh, good, good. Did you get a good night's sleep? I did. Yeah, got about seven hours or so. That's pretty good. Oh. Because uh, you're staying uh, at an airport near here. There is an airport near here, yeah. yeah. But you're staying at Casa del Nick. I am, yes. The yeah. Anderson uh, household is a wonderful place, yes. What's the uh, star rating? Uh, I'd say it's a solid five out of five. Yeah. Excellent. There we go. You heard it here first. So, Jeff, you've uh, obviously you were here at Farnborough two years ago. Mm -hmm. Back again this year. Mm -hmm. how, how do you Actually, think I was back last year, and there's really not a lot of people no, no. or airplanes or anything really going on. <laughs> But yeah, actually, you were here in the UK with us in January. Yeah, I was for the uh, for the two hundred for the two hundredth uh, PTUK celebration. Yeah. That was a lot of fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've seen you twice this year already. This is that's this right. Is fantastic. Wow. Honestly, yeah. I'm lucky. I'm lucky. Very lucky. Well, I'm lucky. <laughs> so Jeff, you've uh, been enjoying enjoying the uh, the the beers here in the UK. I have not had one drink since I've been here. I've had probably dozens, maybe even over a hundred. So, that's good. Yeah. That's good. It's been quite a quite a toll on my liver, I think. So you've been here now in the UK for what? Just over a week? Is it a week now? You've well, been in the it's UK? been. I uh, came in on Thursday, Wednesday morning of uh, the previous week. So it's been more than a week. Yeah, a week. Wow. A week and a few days. Week and a half total, I think. So this must be quite sort of uh, interesting for you. The fact that we actually have some here, or sun, you know, summer. Yeah, I was expecting it to rain the <laughs> entire time, and I haven't seen a drop. Yeah, it's been very nice and dry, warm. Yeah, nice, uh, nice and green. Well, well, ish. Yeah, yeah. There's some green over there. That's so, uh, Jeff. We are standing right, sort of uh, in front here of the A380. Have we you are. had a chance to uh, look on board yet? No, I haven't. No. Are they uh, are they open for uh, tours? Between two and four. Okay. I'm guessing you're going to be uh, heading that way for a uh, for a preview. I uh, I guess I will be yes. Now that you've said that, mm. mm -hmm. I did notice along the flight line earlier there are no mad dogs here. What? No. Are you kidding me? I guess they've stopped trying to sell them. 
Yeah. <laughs> a long time ago, they tried, <laughs> tried to stop selling those things, yeah. The Mad Dog is what I fly, the 88 and the 90, and uh, it's, a, um, it's an airliner. Kind of from the uh, DC-9 heritage. It's actually a DC-9-88 and a DC-9-90. And uh, it's a... Oh, that's it's Pip. an airplane. Pip's just going. It's, yeah. It's Pip off. I think so. Yeah. He's had enough. He's no, had enough. it's actually... Um, at, at, at our carrier and several other carriers... It's Acme. Acme, yes. Yeah. Uh, it, you know, it has the reputation to... Well, it doesn't have a great reputation, let's be honest. Uh, but... And I never expected to fly it. But I've been on it now for about 16 years, a little over 16 years. It's really not that bad of an airplane. It's a nice jet. It has a great heritage. It's, uh, you know, the fly-by-wire airplanes we have out here. Well, this is not fly-by-wire. It's fly-by-cable. Yeah, literally, the cables and the pulleys and everything else go to the actual control surfaces themselves, physically. And you get a really nice feel. And it's just got a, an interesting... The way it flies is unlike any other jet that I've flown before and it's, uh, it's great. Do you, do you think you'd be interested in having a go at flying the 380? Is that something you'd like to... Uh... Well, I mean, I wouldn't mind, but uh, Acme needs to buy some of those to, uh, to for me to fly that, so we, we don't... My airline doesn't fly the uh, 380. No, no US airline actually I think flies the uh, 380. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I, would, I wouldn't mind going up and, you know, having a pattern, a uh, couple circuits around the pattern, you know, that would be kind of fun, I think. Excellent. Is there any particular aircraft you're looking forward to seeing in the sky today, Jeff? Um, Obviously, we've got the uh, the 350-1000 just over there. Yeah, I saw that show, uh, the demonstration on Thursday. We were, I was here on Thursday and uh, saw the 350-1000, the, the very impressive. Uh, the uh, Dreamliner, another impressive demonstration. Al would beg to differ, but... Yeah, yeah. well, you know, we... We have some disagreements uh, or disagreements on uh, you know specific brands and stuff, but to me they're all airplanes and it doesn't matter. You know they all they all fly pretty much the same and they're all uh, they're all fun to fly. I think. Excellent. So Jeff, you're off back to uh, to Atlanta, I guess uh, Sunday tomorrow. or Monday tomorrow. Mm -hmm. yep. Okay. Uh, business class, obviously. Well, I'll I'll see. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, I'm hoping so. Yeah, I didn't have it on the way out. I was uh, in the very back. Uh, it wasn't wasn't too bad of an experience. It came over on a 330-200, oh. and uh, it was it was pretty comfortable. Yeah. Excellent. Well, as, all, as always, Jeff, it's been a pleasure to uh, to see you and meet up with you again. It's always good to have you over here in uh, in, in Blighty, yeah, as uh, Nick would say. And uh, yeah, I hope you enjoy the rest of your day and your rest of your weekend here. I plan on. And uh, don't forget, me and Matt, we do live in the uh, back end of nowhere, but it'd be great to see you. <laughs> I'd love to uh, make a trip over there sometime. Not this time, but. Maybe next time I'm, I'm here, I'll, I'll awesome. make the trek. Well, well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. Well, thank and, you. And uh, take care. All right. If you don't mind, I, I'd like to kiss the... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> wow. That, 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 proved, that did prove to be very popular, your muff, Nev. I'm yes, not going to lie. Yes, it had a, a lot of attention, <laughs> more, more than I'm used to, I have to say. But, um, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, it's almost worth the investment, hey. Uh, yeah, yeah, it's... Uh, I don't well, you know it. what they say, when you've got a good muff, it will draw a crowd. Quite right, <laughs> indeed. <laughs> that sound advice uh, for everyone <laughs> in general there. Okay, we've got a piece of uh, feedback that I'm going to play out uh, now for you. And uh, he says, trying to frantically find it. He's lost, he's lost it. And uh, so, yeah... We don't, we don't get a great deal of feedback, uh, but I'm delighted to say that a new listener, a chap by the name of Tom Harris, has reached out to us, and here is his feedback. Hello all at PTUK House and your esteemed collection of listeners. 
Um, I'm a new listener, new to PTUK, and I have to confess I, uh, I branched out slightly from Airline Pilot Guy. I started listening to that show in around February, and um, after a couple of episodes, um, was referred or, or found myself referred over to uh, PTUK as well. Um, so it's a, a slightly new world to me, but one I'm enjoying very much. Um, I'm just responding to uh, your request for audio feedback. Um, I noticed in the last couple of episodes that I've been listening to um, that you were asking specifically for audio feedback. And so I thought to myself, well, that's something I can do to, to help the show because I do really appreciate um, everything you do with the show. Um, it's something that I really look forward to listening to every week. Um, I find myself um, driving around for my job uh, at least uh, one day a week. And it's just something that uh, rather than listening to the same radio show and the same music over and over again, um, it's something that I'm really interested in. And uh, it's nice to hear like-minded individuals uh, talk about something that you, you have an interest in. Um, I'm not sure how, how you do it, because I have to confess it's taken me long enough to, uh, to send in this small uh, clip of audio feedback. So how on earth you guys managed to pull together a show, find a time when you can all uh, get together. And uh, I assume you all have, uh, all have jobs <laughs> as well. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's really appreciated, though, the work that you do. Um, it's top notch. And um, I have to say, they, they talk about IPA a lot in, uh, in the APG. And I have to say that this whole, uh, whole World of Aviation podcast is, is not dissimilar to uh, my relationship with beer. Um, you, start, you start drinking beer. And to start with, it's, uh, it's an interesting, interesting taste. And you're not convinced. But for some reason, you... You, you persevere, there's something about it, and before long, you are um, uh, hooked, let's say. And that really is a compliment. It's something that I really do, um, really do enjoy, and I do also really enjoy beer. Um, so what I thought I'd do, I don't have any, uh, any specific, I find it interesting, they call it feedback, but I don't have anything uh, specific to feedback. Um, so I thought I would give myself a, or I'd introduce myself slightly as I'm a new listener and I haven't really um, engaged with the community. Um, I tend to listen on the audio podcast, so I don't get to join in with the live uh, live chat that you seem to have um, going on, which is something that I'll aim to do in the future. Um, but uh, yeah, I thought I'd just introduce myself and tell a bit about my sort of interest in aviation and hopefully it will just... Um, strike true with a, a few of your listeners. I'm sure many of your listeners are in the same situation as, as myself. Um, so yeah, my name is Tom and I'm from um, uh, from Southend, home to PTUK's favourite airport, I'm sure. Um, and like many young, uh, young children, I was always interested in anything that moved, anything mechanical, machinery, all that kind of thing, just uh, infatuated by it and I kind of knew from a very young age that's something I wanted to do. I wanted to be an operator, I wanted to work with machines, I wanted to do something along those lines. And um, within that uh, umbrella of, of interest um, was also aeroplanes and um, living near Southend Airport. I, it was, it's not the, uh, the hub of uh, UK travel 
it wasn't the hub of UK travel that it is now. And so I used to get excited every time uh, something bigger than a Cessna passed overhead. Um, but yeah, certainly aviation was included in that in that interest. Although I didn't at the time consider for one minute that um, a career in aviation was a possibility for me, um, for various reasons. My, you know, my upbringing, my personal situation. I just I just didn't think it was a possibility, um, and didn't even give it a thought. It might as well. Uh, dream of being an astronaut or a rock star or something like that. Um, but it was always there. The interest was always there. I used to go along to, to air shows and, and, and everything else. Um, and I can remember my first flight in a, in a helicopter at Southend Air Show. They did a, a joyride. And I was, you know, I was absolutely just in awe of it all, really. Um, but then... Later on, um, so I, I moved on to a career and I started actually working in agriculture. Um, I chose tractors over planes. Um, but then in my uh, early 20s, uh, something happened. Um, well, a couple of things happened. I took my first commercial flight and uh, on that flight, the uh, I think it was the first officer actually gave a uh, his PA from the front of the aeroplane and you could tell he was just completely passionate about what he was doing and that really struck with me and uh, suddenly i was there sort of face to face with someone who was who was doing something that i'm i was interested in um and then uh shortly after that i got my first um taster flying lesson so half an hour in a uh, pa28 uh i believe it was and from that point on the the dots kind of joined up um, and suddenly this this thing that I was interested in suddenly could become something that, um, OK, you can work and, and make that into a career. So it kind of moved from uh, sort of impossible and not even worth considering um, to to, OK, this is this is something that could potentially um, happen. And it's fair to say that I have been um, uh, bitten by the avi aviation bug uh, well and truly since that date. Um, and I think it's actually it's a very old quote, um, but it's described very well by Da Vinci. Um, I think it's for once you have tasted flight, you will walk the earth with your eyes turned skyward. For there you have been, and there you will always want to return. Um, and I think that will that will strike true with with many people listening to this uh, to this show. And actually, um, I sort of got a a sense of it in uh, pilot pilot Pip's recent seg segment on uh, celestial navigation in episode 233 um, i think it is that sort of common interest in the in the skies above that that seems to manifest itself in um all, all aviators um and i quite often find myself staring up at the night sky while everyone keeps their their heads uh, heads down um so anyway moving on from that now in my late 20s and I have yet to start any formal uh, training, although it's something I set my sights on. Um, I think we all know that the cost of aviation training is somewhat prohibitive. Um, and so I guess this is a this is a sort of a a bit of advice or yeah, I'm not sure I'm qualified to give advice, but what I found is with all goals in life, you'll find barriers that will stop you um, from 
or that will seem to prevent you from achieving them. Um, and what you have to do to get around that is you have to do the things that um, you can do. Focus on what you can do to get closer to your goal and not what you can't do. Um, don't focus on the big wall. Focus on, on the little baby steps that will take you around the big wall, if you like. Um, and so what I do is I, I read up what I can and I try and increase my knowledge of aviation. Um, I try and network as much as possible, go along to um, careers days, um, try and talk to people in in aviation whenever I get the opportunity. Um, and occasionally, maybe once a year, I might get to uh, fly. I might get a flying lesson for a birthday. I might scrape together enough cash to uh, to take a lesson. And that just keeps the that just keeps the passion going and it keeps keeps it ticking over. But one of the fantastic things uh, that contributes to that whole uh, what you can do is actually listening to to shows like PTUK and that's that's been really fantastic it's something I can listen to while I'm actually driving around um, doing my job and it does just keep you in touch with things within the aviation industry and it gives you a bit of a heads up as to to what uh, might be happening and what opportunities might be um, coming up and it's it's just it, and, it, and it also just keeps the passion going it's um, it's really great and I can't express my gratitude enough for that so what I'm doing is I'm trying to, to, to do those things and just enjoying the, the here and now, um, focus on what, what you have got and what you can do. Um, I've got, a, I've got a, a pretty decent job. Um, I've got a, a great family and, and life is, is generally pretty good. And I'm sure that soon enough I will work myself into a position um, where I am able to take the next step and and that next step along the road of, of um, hopefully finding some paid work in aviation. So that's it um, from me and just a, a bit of my, my background. Um, and uh, yeah, I just wanted to, yeah, as I say, just provide a bit of uh, support for the show in giving, uh, in giving a bit of audio feedback and expressing, expressing my gratitude. Sorry it was a bit lengthy, but you did ask for it, um, so I'm not too sorry. Um, other than that, I have shared a link in, uh, in the email that I sent this audio clip with. Um, for those in a similar situation as, as me, um, something I heard on the BBC News um, about a, uh, I think it was the grandson of a Spitfire ace, um, has managed to set up a uh, flying display completely uh, operated or flown by uh, flying display team. This is um, flown by uh, all disabled people with disabilities in, in some way or another. And the link takes you to a short, uh, short clip, uh, video clip on sort of a bit, bit of an interview with, with each of those. Um, and it just goes to show that there aren't many genuine barriers to to um, what you want to do in life. Um, if these guys can overcome that and form an aerial display team, then um, the world really is, is your oyster. Um, so yeah, I've included that in there, and yeah, it's just it's just uh, pretty inspiring, really. I think they did their first um, display on the fifth September. I haven't found any footage of that yet, um, but. Yeah, I'll have, I'll have another look and I'm sure um, 
you, you can find something online as well. And um, other than that, I will leave. I will leave uh, now and um, hope to catch up again soon. And I will continue enjoying listening to the show. Many thanks, Tom. Wow, thank you, Tom. That was a fantastic bit of it. I'll tell you what, we're having a real run of luck in regard to inspirational young people, I think. It's uh, it's great to hear from you, Tom. Thank you very much for taking the time to write. Even you got a mention, Pip. How about that? <laughs> What a top chap, eh? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, no, seriously, thank you uh, for doing that, Tom. Much appreciated. Uh, great pleasure playing it out for you. And, uh, yeah, we'll, um, yeah, if if you've been inspired to tell us a little bit about uh, uh, your interest in aviation, there you are, you see, great subject matter for people to talk about. Uh, send your feedback to podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Once again, Tom Harris, thanks very much for taking the time to send that to us. Uh, Nev, I think we better start wrapping up. I've just realised how massively overrunning we are. Yes, I, I can see you twitching there at the, uh, at the two hour mark. Let alone now, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. Uh, Absolutely. It's, uh, it's, been, it's been a good show, hasn't it? Very hectic. We packed a lot in uh, this week yeah. and uh, it was great. Just to let you know that next week's show won't be on Friday, nope. but it'll be on Sunday morning. And we've got a couple of special guests uh, who are Paul and Alex from the Layovers podcast. Um, and if you haven't heard that podcast, it's definitely worth a, yep. a download and listen. There's lots sort of Nev's passenger experience type stuff going on there as yeah, well. So absolutely. we're looking forward to uh, chatting with them uh, next week and that will be on. Yeah, I, I listened to my first uh, uh, of their podcasts a couple yeah. of weeks back and I think I texted you actually, Nev, or yes, I yeah, text yeah. one of you guys and said, hey, check this out. This, you you said really how much good. better it was than, than, than my one. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, there was a bit of Skype. Is it the, the leg over podcast? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. It might well be. Yes, indeed. Okay. All right, okay. I'll look that one up then. <laughs> yes, I should. Yes, it's right up your street. Yeah, yes. I'm surprised <laughs> you haven't bookmarked it already. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Uh, well, look, look, gents, thank you so very much for for joining us, uh, Pip. Uh, where are you? Where are you off to next week? Anywhere nice? Uh, yeah, the states. So I've got a, a flying out to Chicago on Wednesday, uh, and then a, another flight to Columbus, Ohio, and I'm there for. Yeah, eight or nine days in total. I'm okay. going to be um, visiting at the end of it, going back and staying a few days in Chicago, okay, and uh, seeing the sights and, uh, and having fun. Fantastic! Uh, so yeah, looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah, well, it is when you're there. Yeah, <laughs> well, indeed. Uh, well Al, where are you? Where are you this week? Anywhere nice? Uh, well, I'm, I'm going in the opposite direction. I'm heading uh, east, so I. Uh, fly as a passenger tomorrow to Katowice. I'm out there for uh, then seven days, six days of flying, and then I'm back for a few days. Fantastic. Yes. Oh, I should just uh, a little plug then, since I am out there. I'm going to certainly be uh, meeting up with the Columbus locals, Jen and James, and hopefully uh, Rick Bell as well. I'm going to have a round of oh, golf wow, cool. with uh, Rick, hopefully. But if anyone else happens to be in that area, then uh, drop us a line and we'll. Are you taking golf bats with you? Do you know what? We actually have a couple of sets of safe jets uh, golf bats wow. over there really? for us to use. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, we've got quite a few keen golfers, and they've right. uh, they chipped in and got some golf golf sets, golf uh, things there. to okay. to have. So yeah, I'm an expert. As you can they're, tell. they're going to be really pleased when you brand them all, then, aren't they? <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> well, that is true. Uh, Never, are you anywhere exciting this week? Um, Bits and pieces, but uh, yeah, the reason that we can't do the show on Friday, it's the yep. AV Awards at Indeed. the Grosvenor House Hotel yeah, yes. in London. And, well, I'm uh, banned from that establishment. Well, I'm not surprised. <laughs> <Are you? laughs> 
Um, we're only allowed back once a year, but obviously right. I'm going for the uh, AV Unprofessional of the Year. Excellent. Win that. Cool. Um, Lovely. <laughs> yes. Ob- obviously, presumably, we've been nominated for Podcast of the Year. Oh, that obviously goes without saying. We don't do podcasts. But oh, we don't you? Do well, they should. Go, go, have a word with them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Indeed. But they need to join the 21st century. Yeah. That's right. Absolutely. Yes. Well, the, the, the hotel is certainly not the 21st century, as oh. you may know if you've been there. <laughs> right. Oh, dear. Never mind. Yeah. Uh, I'm not doing anything particularly exciting. I think I've got a couple of local trips. To, I've got, well, I think I've got a trip to Southwold this week. That's going to be a bit, uh, mm. bit long distance for me. But, uh, yeah. Is that the, where the flower show is? Uh, no. No. Oh, okay. The What's show. in Southwell then? Um, uh, rich London people usually. Okay. <laughs> so you're taking a load of tourists to go and see some rich London people in their country homes. Yeah, pretty much. It's much better than that. It's actually stars sco- of Hollywood tours. <laughs> so you you get them all in the coach. Yes. And you go yeah. look. There's a rich one there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. There's it's, another one there. To be fair, it's primary school children that I am taking there, and it probably will be very much like that. Uh, in fact, you know, we we don't get rich people much around here, so we do sort of point and you know point at them. Um, you know, with a fancy mink coats and things. So, uh, yes, anyway, on that bombshell, we probably should uh, start to wrap up. Uh, thank you, gents, for So do you get many people coming into Bungie and saying, I, I say, dear chap, um, can you tell me where I can plug my charger, my car into my the charger, car please? charger. Uh, no, but I do have an amusing story about a milk float that I once had to plug into a thing that was going on doing, uh, what was it? I think it went from uh, it went from Lowestoft to, to Land's End. Uh, and it was a milk float, and it came to the King's Head, which is where I was working once, and we had to literally plug Was in. it driven by a chap called Ernie? No, it wasn't. It wasn't the <laughs> fastest milk float in the West. Uh, it was uh, a BBC Four journalist and three nut jobs, basically, who uh, decided that they were going to ride this. Uh, I I'm, I'm actually appear in a book, uh, believe it or not, and it's called Three Men and a, and a Milk Float, and uh, I actually appear in it as... Uh, as uh, somebody who helped them out. So, uh, yeah, anyway, that's my claim to fame. That's got nothing to do with aviation. Uh, we better say goodbye, Ness. <laughs> so is that what we can put on your headstone when yep. you eventually leave this morning? Yes, yeah. He charged the float. He did. He charged the milk float. <laughs> yes, absolutely. Uh, gents, it's I should remember that in 40 or 50 years' time when, you know, we're sat in a pub. Right. Well, what a dashed fine fellow that man <laughs> yes. was. He charged up a milk float. Yes, he did. <laughs> uh, and on that bombshell, ladies and gentlemen, in the words of the infamous Jeremy Clarkson, it is Just time to... Go, was it a two-wheel or a four-wheel drive float? <laughs> uh, four-wheel. Uh, okay. it's... So it was good on the ice then, yeah? Uh, yes, absolutely. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Uh, quite. Uh, <laughs> Nev, help. <laughs> did they let you have a go at it you know, no i wasn't allowed to drive it i just we we had to sort of virtually rewire one of the function rooms in order to be able to plug it in but <laughs> anyway there we are uh, yeah, I mean, I know you've got various fi- classes of vehicle on your license do you have milk float <laughs> Matt, you're gonna have to mute him otherwise you won't stop <laughs> it's, uh, ladies and gents it is 10 o'clock so that means it is time to end it's way past my bedtime nev thanks as always we'll see you next sunday mate <laughs> Take care. Have a nice weekend, folks. From all of us here in the studio and that, everybody say goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye. 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 Bye.